All right, Mikey, Andrew, you're live. We're live. I think it's happening. Can you guys hear me? Yeah, I can hear. All right, and I think I just admitted Nick to, Nick to the chat. So let me – everybody silence your cell phones, please, in the theater. <laughs> All right, chat, are we live, folks? I hear, hear the me? opening music. All right, good to see you, Lewis. Yeah, uh, we can hear you, Nick. Looks like, oh, there you are. Welcome. My, my $70 webcam's not working. Oh, no. All right. Welcome, everybody, to Theory Underground. I'm your host, David McCarricker. You are being joined or we are being joined by the big Signorelli, a.k.a. the Master Signified Bodies, a.k.a. Andrew, as well as his uh, compatriot from the Kvoy channel, Nick. Welcome. And then, of course, we have the dangerous Michael Downs from the Dangerous Maybe, a.k.a. Mikey. This is the Young Jijikians. We've assembled. It's been a while, guys. You're all being wait time, I guess. You're all being too polite. Everybody in the lives on the live or watching this later in the future. I told them all this was going to be structured at the beginning, and I think they're all just like, "Say your piece, Dave." Then we'll say. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't need to be. Doesn't need to be that structured. Jeez. Yeah, like a Zoom, like you know, reading group or like you know, a symposium. Stuffy YouTube symposiums where everyone's yeah, like a scared like... rabbit. <laughs> Everyone, wait your turn. Right. <laughs> All right, folks. Hand. Let me give you the quick rundown of how this is going to go. So the long and short of it is, if you're just joining and you have no idea what this is, there is a Slovenian philosopher and cultural critic named Slavoj Žižek, who is one of the more popular philosophers in the world. And uh, he, every once in a while, gets canceled, as popular people tend to tend to tend to be. Um, but him more so than others because he puts out more than others. And I think he's got less of a filter or a sort of censor than others. And, uh, you know, it does, you know, it helps that he's not just an academic. He's also a popular figure who puts out like documentaries and, you know, talks about popular movies and has like over 10,000 books and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So uh, we are all the young Jijikians for our various reasons. The, Name came about last year as a tongue-in-cheek thing. All right, I mean, it, I was, I mean, if if it was not tongue-in-cheek, then um, I would have felt very awkward about the title because I've read so little Zizek. So uh, as far as Lacanian Zizekian theory goes, I'm probably the biggest baby of all of y'all. Uh, I probably know the least. Um, that's I'm kind of here to hystericize everyone in a sort of sense, um, which in the Lacanian Zizekian vernacular hystericized simply means calling you out, like questioning you, like why, 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 why do you think that? And I don't mean calling out as in like, you know, call out culture. I'm just mean like, but yeah, I know that you think that, but why do you think I should think that? That kind of questioning. And we all, we're all kind of fans of that, that kind of learning, learning through contradiction, learning through tearing with the negative, learning through working through things, considering audiences of people who would uh, justifiably be non-convinced. Um, 
which is obviously not the same thing as just hanging out in academia in in certain circles that always are engaged around certain text thinkers concepts and kind of speaking an insular jargon circuit and not considering the broader public. So, I mean, that's the goal. And so we all came together, uh, what about a month, two months ago to talk about Jonah Hill's documentary Stutz, which was Andrew, I think, was that Andrew's idea or was that, no, it's Mikey's idea, right? Yeah. No, my friend Shannon's idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And so, um, and then, you know, here, here, this stuff was happening. I don't, I don't really know and who, who's the one who found out that, that stuff was happening on Twitter and that people were, that Zizek was trending and, and all of that. Who, who found out, who, who notified I think, us? I think I did first. I'm not sure. I think it was me. Well, we all got, uh, yeah, we all did eight, like all at once. And then Zizek himself came under fire. So mm-hmm. it's a confluence of things. Right, yeah. and the Rock Hill thing. Yeah. Oh, are you? Are we saying names? Is that? I feel it's necessary for what I wrote because it's like a direct response to, uh, or just setting the scene at least. Okay, cool. So basically, Counterpunch is a leftist magazine that released an article that caused a bit of a stir. If you read the first paragraph, it says that Slavoj is this provocative figure who says things like Hitler wasn't violent enough. And then it doesn't contextualize that statement. It just rolls with it. And so we'll get into the details of that stuff in a little bit. Stay tuned for that. But we mainly wanted to use this as a springboard to talk about things that we were already talking about amongst ourselves. uh, Because we've been thinking a lot about uh, the theory of subjectivity, the theory of ideology that we're trying to learn from Zizek. Anybody who was paying attention last year to this channel when it was under the name Theory Pleep knows that Mikey had been has been teaching me about Slavoj Zizek's theory of ideology. And so we did, what, three streams on that, and then we did a fourth stream that combines the series we did on Lacan with the series we did on Zizek, and that was the one on the phallus. And so why would the working class care about this kind of stuff? Um, and, and, and how are we finding it beneficial for how we think about ourselves in the world? And what is the relationship between what we do and the broader, uh, left on the one side and the working class, wherever that is, whatever that is, what is that? We'll be talking about that as well. Um, but I said, in the, on the thumbnail, it says that this is going to be a respectful thing. And I, I think that that should be pretty easy because none of us are like super triggered or bothered about any of this stuff going on. It was really just funny to see the the Twitter commentariat, you know, losing its its mind over, over this piece. Um, j- people love to jump at an opportunity to not take a thinker seriously and anything they'll use, any, any reason to, to justify uh, dismissing somebody who's written a bunch of difficult books, they'll usually go for it, especially if, you know, writing on that discourse's coattails means you can get some clout. And so um, that's what we're here for, to get some clicks. Let's be honest, everybody. 
But we know genuinely, honestly, a lot of the people who saw the, what was going on, they see, they see this going on and they go, well, that's not the reason I'm interested in Slavoj's work. And so I'm going to keep plugging along. He's going to keep plugging along. This, this kind of stuff, this cancellation stuff never affects the theory people because theory people do what they do. And we're not in it for those reasons, right? But yeah. we are in a precarious situation. We're not embedded in academia, on tenure track, or much less like in these institutions or in these conference circles. So it's like we're just out here in the wilderness. And when we're talking to our normie friends about jouissance and death drive or subjectivity and they hear us referencing Zizek, if they look it up, if they look it up, they're going to find some article like this and they're going to be like, wow, this guy sounds like a real, real asshole. Sounds like a real piece of shit. Like you read the current affairs piece from a couple years ago, you go, what a fucking trash human. Why would anyone read this guy? <laughs> right. Or you read the counterpunch piece. Like who could, what is it that attracts people to this? And the current affairs piece actually put it, I think at one point in there, they say that, uh, it's, you know, this was the article called What is Zizek for? And uh, in that one, it, I think that they, they, they basically said it might just be the fact that he keeps saying the wrong things that actually attracts a lot of people to him. People enjoy that. And of course, I don't think they put it in that, in that, in that sense, like people get their jouissance yeah. from seeing Zizek do this. But for, for just for, to be, to put all my cards on the table, if I'm going to associate with leftists, I wouldn't want to associate with the ones who wouldn't want to associate with Zizek, right? And so it's like, yeah, we could all sit here and talk about Badu because Badu plays his cards very carefully and he doesn't go out and he, – he has a bit of a filter, right? <laughs> he, he's, he's a big fan of the Cultural Revolution and he was a big fan of cancel culture back in the day. He was canceling Deleuze. And so – you know, if you're if you're if you're into Bedou, maybe it's a bit easier. But no, if you're if you're into Zizek, it means you're go you, you are sacrificing certain connections. Now, for us, that's not a sacrifice. I mean, it's actually yeah. one of, it's one of the benefits. But Bye. Uh, <laughs> we won't miss you. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's enough of the setup, though. Uh, uh, what are we going to do for the next hour here? We're going to uh, talk about the counterpunch piece. That's what Nick's going to do. We're going to play a message from Daniel Tutt of Zero Books uh, where he elaborates on why he on the Twitter discourse had contributed saying that Zizek has an antipathy to the working class. I reached out to him, asked him for comment on that. He elaborated and said we could play his message on stream. Andrew has some thoughts on that because it's related to his interests in Althusser. Um, and then uh, once that's all been set up, we're going to actually get into what is this theory of subjectivity, why does it matter? And when I said earlier that this is an opportunity for us to talk about something we were already talking about, this is also an opportunity to talk about what just happened over on Sublation Media because I think it was a week ago, Ashley Frowley, who we love, by the way, was talking to Doug Lane. And uh, I just met her in London like uh, about a month ago. And we did a patron-only stream for Sublation Media uh, with Ted Reese and my partner, Anne, and that was just a great time. Um, but even in that conversation, I remember Ashley had said some things about subjectivity, and I remember kind of being like, thinking about it after the fact, like, what was she saying about subjectivity? And so I reached out for clarification from her. She told me kind of her position a little bit more. And then here she was in conversation with Doug, and basically when he characterized the psychoanalytic interest 
and context of uh, of subject or you know of subjectivity, this theory of subjectivity. Um, he was drawing off of Russell Jacoby, and the, he's you know Russell Jacoby is a big defender of the psychoanalytic tradition, but specifically the Freudian one. I don't think he's a Lacanian, and so I've not read him myself. I've got some of his books, and people gave me, but. For for me, uh, what what I'm looking forward to the most in this conversation, outside of kind of responding to some critics and trying to salvage the reputation of someone who honestly doesn't need us to be doing this, um, is this opportunity for Mikey to kind of, I mean, just say like, hey, folks over at Sublation, you know, so you here's what you don't like about these theories of subjectivity. Okay, well, here's how that doesn't really apply to what we're doing and what we're interested in and how what we're interested in is actually a sort of correction on, on that whole thing. And so we'll get into all of that. But for right now, I want to kind of just hand it over here to Nick, who's probably done the most uh, in terms of effort in the last like day preparing for this. Um, welcome, Thank you, Nick. Nick. Yeah, I didn't have a lot of fun reading the article but you know what i'm glad it was written because it brought us all together and now we're going to address it so i would like to just read what i wrote today um i think this will set us up nicely uh for the proceedings and after i read my little intro i am going to uh, bullet point some of the objections made in the Counterpunch article. And I would encourage people to interject when they want or just let them hang. And I think, um, you know, over the course of our symposium, they'll be addressed in one way or another. All right. So um, as we all know by now, this past week, Slavoj Žižek came under fire uh, primarily for political statements he has made in the past, charges against him as a frenzied political shapeshifter were backed up by other notable academics who capitalized on the moment to side with his detractors. Um, you know, Jeremiah's against the purity and authenticity of his leftist orientation are nothing new. By now, burning his media persona in effigy while taking his provocations in bad faith has become something of a yearly tradition. And this ceremony is never brought to its conclusion without taking some pot, some pot shots at the legitimacy of his philosophical undertaking. Strangely enough, his uh, bibliography um, in multiple languages is often cited as somehow evidence against rather than support for his seriousness as a philosopher, he's too prodigious of a writer. Um, we Zizekians, uh, in my opinion, should not be expected to support each and every of his articulations apropos of his changing political perspectives. Uh, from my point of view, when it comes to his politics, I wouldn't say that there's an actual holistic exterior to his politics and that the attempt to discern the figure of a latent imperialist, pro-capitalist, liberal uh, behind this sort of convergence of different perspectives 
actually ignores one of the main leitmotifs of Zizekianism, and that's anamorphosis, which I would define as an optical illusion, which reflexively bespeaks the distortion inherent to the subject position. So the common example here is that of the, I think, Hans Holbein painting, The Ambassadors, where there's this kind of skull that's warped, and you have to change the angle from which you see it in order to reveal that, oh, it's a skull. So Zizek's style is anamorphotic in this sense. It forces you to change your subject position constantly. So that's one thing, but we could, you know, we could make excuses for him and, and ourselves, you know, we could say, oh, well, you need to be familiar with his theories of ideology, jouissance or enjoyment and social antagonism before trying to make sense of his mercurial political shifts. Uh, we could say Slavoj, the commentator, says controversial things in order to rouse liberals, conservatives, and Marxist-Leninists alike from a kind of self-adulating complacency. We could say that he just doesn't take very seriously the media outlets who routinely enlist him to proffer his you know, assessments on current affairs, but then are just as quick to throw him overboard when record of certain not-so-PC utterances is dredged up, like in the case of this article. Um, does Slavoj say things which, even for those of us who believe we understand, some of the rudiments of his theory are very difficult to agree with? Absolutely. Do I think uh, some of what he has to say about military interventionism um, or NATO is wrong? Well, I'm not a fan of American military interventionism or American imperialism in general. And when it comes to NATO, I consider myself very uh, undereducated in this topic. So I won't be weighing in there. At any rate, I'm sure that apart from those political views, which are for him axiomatic, and I'm I'm thinking, you know, he has certain views which are chiefly informed by his experience of growing up under and uh, quote unquote um, actually existing socialist regime. Uh, much of what he avows in his op eds, and I uh, I owe this thought to um, Michael and so on, as we've dubbed him from Zizek and so on the podcast. Much of what he avows in his op-eds are really kind of samples extracted from whatever book he's working on at the time, and which, like, when you remove these statements from the larger network of ideas that he's uh, experimenting with, they can appear incongruous, unfinished, and maybe underdeveloped. Now, does he care? Not at all. Should we? Well, let's figure that out as we uh, progress. Um, I understand that many of his contentions about the impact of, let's say, you know, Trump's election don't necessarily square with his endorsement of the squad, that he might have supported liberal causes to purge the Slovenian government of socialist elements, as Rock Hill in this article claims. Um, I can't say whether this is a good or bad move, having not grown up in the Soviet bloc. You know, I have no idea if he's a, he was actually involved in the establishment of the liberal democracy of Slovenia party, as uh, Rock Hill claims. And in a footnote, Rock Hill also says that he's not so sure of this claim either, but that he has it on good authority, blah, blah, blah. Um, and as for the claim that he doesn't 
support the working class. I find this to be completely baseless. As Egon Hamza said on Twitter, Zizek simply doesn't fetishize the working class, which I would agree with. And I imagine, um, and I can't substantiate this, but I bet he comes into contact with more of the working class than do a large majority of academics who believe their work serves the interests of the proletariat. What about the whole, oh, he's not a real philosopher spiel? Well, in today's discussion, um, Mikey and co will be countering this claim with a lot more verve than I can muster here. But suffice it to say, in my opinion, there's no way to attack a system as intricately developed and deeply textured as that of Zizek's without appearing foolish. Understanding Slavoj, which is a goal I wouldn't count myself as anywhere close to reaching, entails not only tarrying with Lacan's three registers, but also translating Hegel's central concepts inside that framework. Any critique of his philosophy, which isn't as equally conversant with the traditions within which he is operating his innovations, should not be taken seriously. I know what we're asking in this regard is a tall order, but hey, you know, Zizek is a, a heavy lift. And as, you know, Dave uh, mentioned earlier, I think rather than admitting defeat, uh, many people who have at one point or another thought to take on Zizek's project ultimately find recourse in the tired argument that he's a charlatan and a paradox monger who's in it for the money and the fame. Okay. Because that's a much easier option than reading Hegel. And I think that's what everyone's trying to avoid here is actually engaging with Hegel. So that's my uh, prolegomena. And I have some bullet points here. We don't have to read them all, but... Um, Let's let's just see really what quick you, if anybody wants to. Yeah, does anyone want to say anything before we get into the bullet points here? Not Mikey? really. I think I think it's better the stuff I have to say. I'll say later. Okay, cool. Because I know that Mikey has some stuff prepared on this note about the working class and stuff. But yeah, it probably makes sense for us to do that to get into that stuff once Andrew's gotten into this stuff on the other side of the tut thing. So let's do some of these bullet points. Yeah, really quick. Let's just cut. You know, we don't need to lead people on forever. Uh, why would Zizek say something like the uh, Hitler wasn't violent enough? Could we just get to that? Is that one of the bullet points you have there, Nick? Um, not that specifically, but maybe we should get that out of the way because yeah. that's a big matzo ball. Yeah. Who, who wants to take a crack at it? Who's actually read him saying it? Right. So he says it on an interview as well, um, that Hitler, uh, wasn't violent enough and Gandhi was more violent. And you have to understand in his book on violence, what he means. He talks about the difference between objective violence and subjective violence. Things that Hitler did, did like, you know, genocide, um, you know, the Holocaust. Yes, they were. It was objectively true that the Holocaust happened, uh, you know, stabbed to our Holocaust deniers out there. But, you know, this 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 was an atrocity. But what this represents to Zizek is a phenomenon that we subjectively adhere to because we're used to murders. We're used to seeing that. But we're not used to the sort of thing that's outside of our peripheral vision um, that is objective, which is what the system does. 
and that Hitler coming to power was, uh, and, and what he could do was actually a failure of objective violence. So it recoiled to subjective violence, which were the Holocaust. Whereas someone like Gandhi with his um, fasting, uh, it caused uh, upheaval and change within uh, you know, colonialism, imperialism in India. So for him, objective violence is any act that could create revolutionary change of the entire system. And that's what he means by Hitler not being violent enough, that he couldn't change the system or create any change in Germany that he promised. No, he just uh, ended up regressing toward you know, the path of you know, scapegoating. I mean, it's fascism. It's, it's Nazism. And that's what they did, scapegoat. Um, they use different sorts of uh, appeal to romanticism and other uh, ideological forces. And while, uh, you know, not doing anything, for lack of a better term. That's my stab at it. Pretty much objective violence for Zizek and why Hitler or Gandhi was more violent was because he created systemic change and destroyed and dismantled the system versus someone like Hitler. Great job. Yeah. I mean, I just, I'll just add in, I mean, look, he, Andrew nailed it, but I'll just say like maybe the, his Slavoj's choice of objectives, subjectives, a little, I don't know, confusing. Here's what it boils down to. There's violence against people and there's violence against the system, um, your symbolic order, your social order. And the idea is that Hitler was very, very violent against people, but he didn't do anything to really change the, the structure of capitalist society. All he did was augment it by bringing in this fascistic scapegoating thing against Jews, right? Um, whereas Gandhi actually set out to change the very structure or framework of his society and effectively did so. And so it's in this sense, like there's violence against human beings and there's violence against the social order itself. And that's all Slavoj is getting at is this distinction. And by violence against the social order, he's simply saying a reconfiguration of that social order. Capitalism itself, or we could even just say capital, was very violent in relation to feudal social orders, right? It totally undermined them, broke them down. And so capital was incredibly violent in this sense of changing, modifying, revolutionizing the social order. And then that's what he's got in mind. That's good. Nick, you want to take it away here? Yeah. Uh, feel free to interrupt at any point. So on the table, we have Eurocentrism. I want to mention that Zizek and so on did an episode about Slavoj's supposed Eurocentrism. So we can talk about it, but maybe for the viewers right now, you could just check out that episode where they address it. Uh, another bullet point here we have is his output. This is a funny one. He writes too much. He publishes too much. He gives too many interviews. He made documentaries. You're not supposed to do that when you're a philosopher. Um, what else do we got here? He repeats himself. He repeats himself. God forbid if you believe something that you should repeat it. Um, <laughs> this is something that he does. It's true, you know, because uh, for Rock Hill, uh, who translated Ranciere, he, as he put it, uh, wanted to guarantee lucrative sales, or his publishers did. So they asked him to get a forward from 
Zizek. And what Zizek sent back was a, uh, a passage that strikingly resembled something he had written in Ticklish Subject. Now, this is something he does often. I, I noticed he did it in uh, Surplus Enjoyment, the beginning of the second chapter. The whole beginning is verbatim the forward he wrote for Gabriel Tupanamba's Desire of Psychoanalysis. I don't think this is a problem. I think it jibes really well with the rest of the chapter, but this is something he does. And according to Rock Hill, this shows a shameless disregard for scholarly rigor. And had he any, as he puts it, had Rockwell had any institutional power, he would have rejected it. So you get this scholarly rigor charge a lot too. And I find that it's all often connected with the institution of higher education and this thought that, you know, universities, because they um, impose upon their doctoral students a structure within which they're meant to work and um, produce their writings, uh, that uh, they have a factory model that produces better thinkers, better research, better ideas. And that's called rigor. Do with that what you will. Um, what else do we have here? They taught us how to write in a very boring way <laughs> with a lot of references to a lot of people we didn't really read who we actually gutted, you know, but we have to do this in order to get published in the right journals, you know. Yeah. Peer review, which means that only your peers will ever read what you write <laughs> and maybe not even they don't want to read what you write either because if it's better it's like uh, what um, Ernest Hemingway's character says in um, what's what's the Woody Allen movie, um, Midnight in Paris. He's like, well, if I like what you wrote, I'm going to hate you because I'm going to think you're a better writer. If I don't like it, then I'm not going to want to hurt your feelings. Or in the case of a lot of academics, they will make it their mission to hurt your feelings. Um, at any rate, or they'll nobody... just say, yeah. or they'll just say it's interesting, you know. Yeah, exactly. Which, you know, Slavoj says after conference, uh, that is one of the, uh, you know, main descriptors that people use when they don't want to say what they really think. It was interesting. It was interesting. Uh, all right. Something else here that I thought was interesting is that, um, but actually interesting. Slavoj says life under capitalism when he was growing up in Yugoslavia at the time was better and Rock Hill cites some statistics about Yugoslavia, Slovenia, standard of living. He doesn't understand. He's like, he doesn't offer any anecdotal evidence as to why life under capitalism was better. Um, that, that's one thing that I thought was kind of funny. What else is here? Um, that one. Of military... Yeah, go ahead. That one is probably the real sticking point for this author as I, I, I mean, I, I didn't fully read this article. I'm going to be perfectly honest. I, I read like the first half of it, but the, uh, I, I, I interpassively read it very thoroughly through Nick, but the, uh, this, this author is upset. that Slavoj is not like Michael Parenti. 
that's what it boils down to. He wants Zizek to be out there being like, hey, everyone, you got it wrong. Actually exists in socialism? Awesome. That thing I grew up – my experiences with it firsthand, they were great. I'm, just, I'm sorry. Let me, let, me, uh, let me read ahead a little bit because what you have to say there um, directly speaks to these next few bullet mm. points. Uh, so, yes, uh, he doesn't offer any anecdotal evidence for why life was worse under this regime. To me, it seems he mainly dislikes the fact that Slavoj is not a fan of actually existing socialist regimes um, and has never lent his support to the project of realizing Marxist ideals on a global scale. I am going to quote what Rockhill says in a footnote here about Badu and Zizek. Badu and Zizek have occasionally taken political positions in support of the working class, so he admits this much. And this is not the object of my critique. It is instead their stalwart opposition with only very minor and explainable exceptions, he says, to the international socialist movement from 1917 to the present, which has taken the form of anti-imperialist state-building projects from the USSR to Vietnam, China, Cuba, and beyond. So I thought that was a very revealing comment. Um, he also doesn't like the fact that Zizek uses Lenin and Leninism and being a Leninist as a kind of floating signifier and accuses him of supporting liberal causes. Um, and there's an interview he did a while back, I forget what the publication is, where he calls himself a Leninist in the sense that, you know, Lenin brutally seized power at a moment where it was opportune. I related his idiosyncratic use of Lenin of the term Leninist in this sense to something like the, you know, Baduian revolutionary event where one swoops in at just the right moment to cause a truth event to happen. But it's only after the fact that this event emerges as such, as an event. In the moment, one can't really discern the meaning of one's actions. But I would say that Kwa, uh, you know, along or Pace but Badu, Zizek is more of a thinker of the event than revolution itself. Maybe some of, maybe Mike or Andrew could counter that. But um, I know event does play into his his system. But I'm just going to cap it off with. One more quote from the article. And I think this is, Mikey, I think you'll have a lot to say about this because it cleaves very closely to something Zizek repeats often about event, revolution, fascism as a false form of revolution. But this author inverts it in a way where I think he gets it completely wrong and absolutely misses the mark when it comes to Zizek's theoretical system. And I think that this statement here can be one of the main hinges of our entire discussion, especially when we're going to relate 
his uh, psychoanalytic interpretation of the subject with uh, his political theory. So Rockhill says, such a posture literally means that these self-styled or self-stylized radical thinkers, such as Zizek or Badu, demand something that cannot be done, which is the epitome of petty bourgeois radicalism. What they truly desire, if we translate their pseudo-intellectual narcissistic self-indulgence into materialist terms, is the appearance of making the most radical demands imaginable while, at the same time, avoiding any threat to the material system of social hierarchies that has elevated them as leading intellectuals in the imperialist core. They desire the impossible and even act on this desire precisely because they do not want anything to substantially change. That, mm. then, is their big idea of communism, namely that it is impossible. There you go. Mm. Thoughts? Comments? Okay, so, no, I'm, I'm glad you highlighted that, Nick, because when I was reading the article, as he's moving down, he finally starts talking a little bit about Lacanian Zizekian theory, starts talking about the act. And he does, he frames it as the act is this desire for the impossible problem of course is that that's not what the act is at all the act is that which makes the impossible possible for slavoy this is what the psychoanalytic act is every time whether it's lacan talking about it with antigone in seminar seven or the various examples slavoy gives of the act throughout his work the act is when somebody does something that at a given moment in the symbolic order is impossible Nevertheless, they do it, and it retroactively changes the symbolic order. Like, oh, it was possible, right? Um, for us, I mean, it's a thing like, oh, it, it is literally impossible for people to not work and have money. And I'm not talking about, like, somebody rich who inherited money. I just mean your average person, You, it's impossible for you to have good amount of money where you can live comfortably and not worry about bills or anything and not work. That's impossible. But the point is we would want to make the impossible possible. Like that's what a political act is where you go, no, actually it is possible. Right. right. But somebody has to does the impossible to make the possible possible. Right. Serfs looking at each other under feudalism say, and, and one of them goes, imagine if we could do any kind of job we wanted. And then the other one's like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> What's the point it's of impossible. that? That's impossible. impossible. It was impossible. Yeah. You it choose was... your social job. Like you, you, you select it. What do you mean? That's impossible. It was but impossible. Made it possible. Right. right. Or imagine, imagine like even like back then, like, could you imagine if we didn't have to attend church, if we had a Bible of our own? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So the Protestant Reformation, you see, is this yeah. kind of act, right? Yeah. And that's what uh, that's the whole point of now, whether we talk, call it an act or an event. I've talked to Todd McGowan about this before, and Slavoj often uses them interchangeably because they really kind of do the same thing. But it's almost going back to the terminology you were using in violence. Like an act seems to have a subjective connotation to it. It's people doing it right. Whereas an event is almost as if like the social order itself triggers its own reconfiguration that opens up a possibility. 
but that's just kind of terminological hair splitting. But no, I mean, he, he misrepresents what the act is. Um, now, also, in in claiming like, oh, well, but it's it's an idea. Like communism is an idea for Badu and for Zizek. It is. But their whole point is making it an idea is what holds open its possibility. And I don't, I mean, this idea, like they don't want it to be actualized. They both want a post capitalist society to be actualized. Um, but the, the, for them, look, they're convinced that old traditional Marxist socialist answers don't, aren't, aren't going to be the answer for us moving forward. Right now, traditional Marxists are going to argue against that. But for Badu and Zizek, they're convinced that the old style Soviet programs aren't going to do it. And so you either, if that's how you feel, you either fall into a kind of despair and go, well, cap, there is no alternative. You can't do anything about capitalism. Or you see communism as a kind of horizon, a possibility. Um, and you're not sure exactly about what its content is, but you're constantly tearing with the, you're constantly struggling to think through what that could be. Right. And that holds open this possibility. And, but I mean, this idea that the act is just desiring the, the impossible, that's just false. I mean, there's so many examples of him clearly talking about the conditions of M possibility. The M is in parentheses and talking about how the act is all about that. The act that makes the impossible possible. I mean, yeah, I would say in Gizekian speak, impossible is also something of a, a compliment. It is something to aim for. Now, we don't want to just constantly reiterate that, oh, you need to understand his use of the term violence or the term impossible within his own idiom. But I would say it is important. But that's why we're, we're here to define these terms in right. Well, and I would also add that he doesn't he doesn't just come out with these utterly absurd uh, takes in the well, okay, when it comes to his public op eds, I would say I just I think a lot of these uh, op eds, it's like, okay, yeah, that is what liberals are saying right now. And you're basically saying it in your own way, Zizek. And I just am like, I don't know. I just, I, I'm always like, I don't know when it comes to this geopolitical stuff. The stuff with NATO, it's always been this big question mark for me. But it, it's not a deal breaker at the end of the day. But uh, what I am trying to say though is he's not coming out saying he doesn't just come out and say in a public interview or op-ed piece, Hitler wasn't violent enough, and and then full stop, and then move on to something else. No, he says he says that in a context where he adds. Someone in the chat mentioned this a little bit ago. He's, he follows that statement up, and so you have to be pretty uncharitable to not follow him out there. But you're right, though. When you're dealing with a philosopher, contingency, possibility, act, desire, <laughs> subjectivity, ideology, um, subject, object, all of these different terms, truth. I'm sorry. If you think that you can go off of a dictionary definition – and then judge what the philosopher says based off the dictionary definition, you're wrong. You're wrong because the people in the dictionary are just going off of, okay, what people generally mean is this. And No, philosophers reinvent what these things mean because these things are – what they mean at the, the way that most people use these terms generally 
don't make sense if you actually go a bit deeper. That's the whole thing that people don't like about a philosophy class. You spend the first, you know, first couple classes just having your doxa broke down. You know, oh yeah, I believe that. And then I believe that. And then, oh, but those two things don't work together. Okay, well then how do we reconcile this? Over and over and over again. And then once you actually start getting into philosopher's primary works, you go, oh, they're working this stuff out. Their whole life project is to understand what these things actually are. And they're using, they're developing their own sense for what it means as they go. And, and sometimes they're arguing it explicitly. Sometimes it's just an implicit part of their project. But yeah, with Slavoj, we shouldn't always have to do this. But I mean, in a, in a conversation like this, we're doing this one for the normies. So absolutely. If you're new to Zizek, any of these terms, just always go, oh, okay, I think I know what that means, but take it with a grain of salt, right? That's, that's the main point. And I just uh, two things on this article, and I, I don't know if we move on, but I just yeah. um, the last two things I just want to say that caught my attention. Slavoj is going to be known for two things in, in, in philosophy as we move forward: his theory of ideology and his Hegelian. It, it, I guess we will say his Lacanian theory of ideology and his Hegelian Lacanian ontology. Right? There's no mention of either. There's there's not no reference at all to the two things that he's focused on the most in his life. Um, This idea that he's primarily a political philosopher or this kind of public intellectual isn't really accurate. What he is, is a very rigorous. I know that his style is deceiving here, but he, he is a rigorous ontologist and theorist of ideology. And I just think that the, the the two things that are most important to his work aren't mentioned here. I think that tells you something. And the other thing, I, I mean, I've seen Marxists attack Slavoj in the past like this, and it's always the same thing. Like, whoever's making the critique, they always presuppose a Marxist-Leninism of, like, the unbarred big other. Like, my Marxism has all the right answers and I am merely its priest informing you on absolute truth because I have science. I have materialist science, right? And all of this is worked out and you are a heretic who simply won't accept the truth that's already been laid out. And I, I don't think Marx in any way, shape or form would go for that. I think Marx would welcome new thinking about capitalism, new thinking about politics and all of this um and i say that as somebody who thinks you can't even begin to have any clue of what's going on in the world without marx um marx is absolutely essential for any type of cognitive orientation in what's going on right um i think these kind of attacks always come from doctrinaire marxists who think that marxism as a science has everything figured out. It's not, it doesn't have any internal inconsistencies. Neither did actual existing socialisms. They didn't have internal contradictions built into them that undermine them. It was all just exterior capital and then all that that broke them down. And so it was all, it was all the reactions fault. Right. Like it's, it's, and so I guess that's kind of what I always see in this is that they, they're, they, they defend Marxism 
in a way that's religious. They, they defend it the way that the Christian fundamentalists I know defend Christianity and how a lot of new atheist types defended atheism, right? Like the content might not be religious, but the form in which they're defending the content is religious. And I just, when I see it, I'm like, okay, well, if you're presupposing that you have a kind of master knowledge that can make sense of everything and we don't need to think anew, we don't need new concepts, we've got it all and we just need to rely on the old Marxist, Marxist-Leninist answers, I mean, we're not going to agree on that. What's, what's weird is that he cites as a supposedly rigorous thinker, uh, analyzer of uh, U.S. imperialism, of all people, Noam Chomsky. That's who he mentions. It's like, oh, well, that's a rigorous analysis. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I'm sure that there's analysis is always scholarly rigor. This is such a invoked term half the time. And it really just says you don't meet my standard. Right. Or even my institution's standard. And someone like me who's working class and not an academic, I go, and like, you know, I mean, I I think for all the work Slavoj's done and the immense, I mean, the immense, philosophical range he's had in dealing with Deleuze and Hegel and Kant and how he moves between all of them. Um, nope, that's not rigorous. That's just bullshit. Like I, I'm, I just don't know how anybody can read his work and think there's no philosophical rigor to it. I just, I don't know. It's faith in the big other of the institution of higher education. I want to make a quick little, uh, just to say, all right, I think that the idea of rigor and truth are good ideas and they're worth striving for in our lives. But like all things, including jokes, there's a time and a place. And that there are ways of mixing jokes and this pursuit of truth and rigor. There's ways of mixing these things and there's ways of experimenting. And the idea of the university is also a good thing. And so the – but what happens in the institution with the, the grind, right? The, the you need to research, you need to publish, you need to blah, 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 grind. Uh, what comes in to appear as rigor a lot of times, it's just these signifiers, right? You're putting off the signs of rigor. I don't think any of us have a problem with real rigor and – for they know not what they do. The book that we've all been reading, we just finished reading it with uh, the Zizek and so on podcast folks and Matthew Philspader. That was a very rigorous work. And Mikey here with us now is going to be teaching that. And that course launches on February 25th. Go to theory-underground.com forward slash courses if you want to look at the courses that are currently being offered. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to use this as a plug before we trans uh, before we segue here. The other thing is that the idea of the university itself is something that you can use to measure the existing institutions against, but it's something that you have to flush out and you can't just go with a definition. You have to actually think it through. What is that idea? What, it, what are its roots? That class begins next week, a week from today. 
I'm one of the teachers for it. There's a few other people in that class. It's the first class that Theory Underground has made available on the website. So I hope you'll think about joining. Carl Jaspers wrote the book on the idea of the university. He is the father of existentialism in a sort of sense. He's a psychiatrist, an existentialist, and one of the profound uh, uh, master thinkers of the early uh, and mid-20th century German philosophy scene. And so it's like... uh, it's like if any great philosopher writes a book about the university uh, and you've got issues with the university, you don't want to go to college, you, you're, feeling, you're feeling hesitant about going to the university, or you've seen things and you're critical of the university, or you're in the university and you're wondering, why am I here? You can redeem your faith in the idea while being critical of the institution by reading this text. And I think that it's a positive critique and I like it for that reason. And so anyway, long story short, the idea of the university is the idea of a community of truth seekers bringing together their contradictory perspectives, trying to flesh out a universal understanding of everything. And it might be impossible and it might be contradictory, but it's obviously worth striving for. And so someone in the chat was just like, why do I feel like Zizek is so contradictory though? Obviously, he's a Hegelian. He teaches through contradiction. You cannot come away from Hegel without being like, oh, contradiction is generative. Without working through contradictions, we don't level up. That's, that's what I have to say. Can I so, just interject there? That's um, exactly what one of the most facile criticisms that's levied against him amounts to which is that oh he just always says things are the opposite of the way they are like that's easy enough to do completely as this author did disregarding the fact that he is a hegelian yeah and you contradiction contradiction is constitutive of what we could possibly call reality and if anybody's like wow you guys you're all so nice and respectful when you're on stream but then in your memes you're always so violent I just, you know, (laughs) it's not just for the lulls. You cannot make sense of the fact that there are differences between viewpoints without highlighting the contradictions, okay? And so teaching through contradiction, that's the goal here. So Mikey, do you want to say anything about the current affairs piece or do we want to go straight to Tut? Let me just run through some basics on the current affairs piece real quick. Um, Okay. I don't want to take too long on this, but I want to address a couple of things. Um, so, I mean, the, the, the worst charge is that he's racist. Um, and when anybody's accused of being a racist, that one catches your attention. The other charges leveled against them in the current affairs article, I, whatever. Um, here's what I think. I think the, the, the quote he was talking about on Islam is it's one that doesn't look good. Okay. Immediately when you, when you judge it, just when somebody quotes it, but I think what he's trying to do, and I think this is what he often does in these political issues is he, he's trying to think dialectically, right? It's, it's trying to see these contradictions between sides. And if you don't simply just go this side, good, this side, bad, then people are going to be upset with you because a lot of, People engaged in politics really are this side good, this side bad, absolutism, absolute dualism, period, right? And so 
what I think he was trying to, the point I think he's trying to make when he's talking about the, the immigrant situation, the refugee crisis is when you have two symbolic orders coming into relationship with each other, um, really kind of like quickly, spontaneously out of nowhere, there can be a lot of frictions between them. And I think he's trying at, in, in this stuff to really deal with the issues that can arise by forcing people, members of different symbolic orders to just immediately coexist, right? And that it's not as easy as that. And there's going to be issues on both sides. But that's the thing. You're not allowed to think there's issues on both sides. It's just the Europeans are bad and the immigrants are angels. And this, this to me is, look, this to me is liberal racism is always the immigrants are treated as angels as non-contradictory beings as perfect hearted people and that's when when you do this move that some a victim is angelic that they, they're without any ill will any contradiction slavoy is not saying all the refugees are bad or, or, or they shouldn't be well. He keeps talking about how they, Europe needs to let them in and accept them, right, and help them. And even the author talks about this. The author keeps going, well, yeah, he's, he keeps saying, like, he, he, he thinks Europe should help them and welcome them. He's also seen that there could be these issues that arise when people from different symbolic orders, I'm sorry, if people have a fundamentalist Islamic symbolic order, and that's their belief system, and you come into Europe, there can be problems of of friction with these, you know, secular European and a fundamentalist Muslim. And to anybody else besides, I guess, a liberal leftist, everybody just goes, yeah, of course, there can be issues there. And Muslims would agree. Right. So. Um, no, wasn't that article that article, if I remember right, because it was a while ago, I, doesn't it say it like it has him like being like you know he talks about some 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 of the high crime rates and stuff like that in some of these districts in Angela Merkel Angela Merkel's Germany uh, when a lot of remember Angela Merkel made a decision yeah. to bring a lot of immigrants in and it was actually an anti democratic decision and Slavoj was kind of taking her side on that but also saying but yeah there's just like these high crime areas there's gang rape there's robberies there's you know and there's these things. And then the point was is that the person in the article is like, yeah, but he doesn't then go and say, you know, show, you know, the 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 stats on how it's actually the people, the natives who c commit the the higher amounts of crimes. I th that is a a talking point that these people specifically like this 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 whole script tends to repeat. Um, what what's lost on them, I think, is that when your neighbor who you grow, grew up around your whole life goes and does something messed up. It is like, everyone's like, Oh my God, that person. Or they're like, Oh my God, that person, I fucking saw that coming. Right. But it's kind of like someone who's, we, we all grew up around that person. And then the shock value or the, Oh, I saw that coming value comes from the fact that they were already a part of the community. You take a bunch of people, not from around there, you put them there and then they do something and it's like, this is something extra. 
this is not something that we would have had to deal with if it hadn't just happened, right? Like if they hadn't just been moved here. And, and I'm sorry, that's a normal thing for a normal person to see. There might be good reasons still to do it. And I think there obviously are because with, with climate catastrophes, with geopolitical problems, there's just going to be more and more and more of refugee crises. It's not going to stop. We need to have a more, we need better solutions for refugee crisis is what it really I'm comes down to. And in that work, I, I remember reading that in a class actually, in that work uh, called oh, The Double Bind, The Problem with the Neighbor, whatever, the one on terror. Yeah. And the, anyway, in that work, he's basically saying on the one side, you can never bring in enough immigrants to solve the problems. And on the other side, you can never keep out enough. And he's saying that more immigrants or less immigrants is the wrong argument. The real argument is what's going on geopolitically that's causing them to have to move here in the first place. And so that would obviously bring up like a mirror to the United States where we have to go, oh, and I hate saying we because none of us are like, oh, the United States, that's us. But, you know, like the point is, is like, uh, you know, our involvement with Saudi Arabia and helping and backing Saudi Arabia as they destroy and uh, you know, drop bombs on all these other countries. I'm sorry. It's just, uh, that's what he's trying to highlight. You know, he's trying to highlight the, the way that the NAFTA deal, uh, shafted farmers in Mexico and made it. So a lot of these farmers who had their own farms are all of a sudden having to go, you know, find work over the border. Okay. That's not well, their it's also fault. Like, okay. Islam as a religion can create problems okay just as christianity and buddhism and hinduism and judaism can create problems and at the same time within themselves have emancipatory elements and he thinks the contradiction it's he's not going to view any religion or any political system as unsplit substantial having a pure uncontradictory essence he's always going to look for the contradictions in any symbolic order. I've heard him praise Islam on numerous occasions for various doctrines. He's all about the, the what is it, the charity dimension of Islam, that it commands a certain act of charity, and he's always celebrated that. And so I've just seen him time and time again point out the contradictions in various religions or belief systems, etc. And that's what he does. But this is one, you're just, no, it's, you have to say it's perfect or it's without anything problematic and everybody knows that all of these systems have issues with them it's just there's a little group of people who say you can't say that when it comes right. to one of them right and yeah they'll probably clip so i think they'll probably I clip think me or you they'll probably clip what? us and they'll probably clip something we said out you know out of context from this conversation and try to use it against mm -hmm. us in the future right it, well, it doesn't okay. matter fuck them no one cares no one cares. That's the that's that's what this all comes down to, is jealousy. You know, people are like, "Oh my God, he gets to say things like that." That I have to be so careful to avoid being misunderstood as saying. Yeah, common sense things well, that normal people would take seriously. Sorry, wasn't wasn't Marx himself also getting canceled a lot too from like a lot of the like publishing companies he worked for or newspaper, uh, you know, companies he worked for, and that's why he was always traveling. Yeah, chase from country. Ch you know, <laughs> chased out of countries, having his publishing house shut down. So, okay, guys, how how far are into this conversation are we? What time is it? Six oh eight. 
it's basically an hour. I want to bring Cadell last in here. I want to bring Michael from Zizek and so on in here. Both of them were going to join in about a half hour was the plan. And so my, uh, there's, I think that we'll talk about uh, the working class aspect of all this and whether or not Zizek has an antipathy to that after we bring on Cadell and, uh, and Michael from Zizek and so on. Oh, and by the way, folks, that's the big surprise. Yeah, I forgot to say it earlier. I should, you know, you know how you're supposed to like lead with things like that. I, I, I left it all until now. But hey, stick around. We've got some special guests. Anyway, so uh, Mikey, uh, let's just get to the theory of subjectivity thing. Uh, obviously, folks have a lot to look forward to from us in the very near future concerning Zizek's work. I'll be putting out in the same way that every morning at between nine and ten thirty. AM Pacific Standard Time. I've been putting out uh, 20 to 30 minute clips of our conversations from over the years about introduction to Lacan. Um, after uh, what, the 21st of this month, it's going to be clips of our conversations about Zizek, and those are going to keep coming out every day until we actually launch the weekly lecture series that we're going to be doing on For They Know Not What They Do. So, uh, but I, I mean, in a nutshell, we're going to talk about why we care about his theory of subjectivity and ideology here and respond to anyone who might be thinking after they heard Doug's explanation of the theory of subjectivity, why would you care about that, right? And so my summary of Doug's theory of subjectivity, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Mikey, is that we're basically reptilian brains that don't really have conscious control yeah, hold on, over... Hold on, hold on, hold on. We don't have... Con- right. Not really, done. Let me correct. Hold on, it's not Doug's summary. It's not Doug. This is not. This is Doug summarizing Russell Jacoby's position. I well, yeah. I said. I said that. Okay. 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 Yeah. So anyway, uh, Doug is characterizing the psychoanalytic theory of subjectivity that people find interesting, um, and he uses Russell Jacoby to do it. Um, okay. None of us have a problem with that. What we have a problem with is that if you are interested in theories of subjectivity and psychoanalysis today, the chances are, at least if you're in this kind of milieu that we're all in, it's not Russell Jacobi's, okay? It's McGowan's and Slavoj Zizek's, okay? And the thing is, is Doug's had uh, McGowan on a few times. And so to characterize the theory of subjectivity as Russell Jacobi's, which is like this overdetermined, reptilian-brained, non-free subject is problematic because what it's missing is the fact that Zizek and McGowan, they're correcting that. It's an intervention against that. And so, Mikey, what is the theory of subjectivity through Lacan? Yeah. So basically what we've got, the problem is when we talk about it in terms of like, oh, we have biological drives and that's our reptilian brains. The issue is that it's presenting this image of libidinal economy as the standard concept of the id, which the id is like taken to be this cauldron of wild animalistic impulses that has nothing civilized about it or or culturized about it or anything like that. It's just wild, natural, biological impulses. And the problem, of course, is that for Lacan and Zizek and McGowan, uh, there really is no id. Now, drive comes to take the place of id but drive is not wild animalistic reptilian impulses. Drive is a surplus that emerges in our body, right? So 
and, and it's often always mediated by signifiers and language and culture and prohibition and all of these cultural aspects. So it's not this naturalistic biological thing. Drive is actually what denaturalizes us, according to Lacan, Zizek, McGowan. And it's it's precisely what takes us out of nature, which which derails us, right? And the point is animals operate according to instincts, right? They have this kind of in, intuitive knowledge of how they relate to their environment, right? We don't lack, we're, we, we, we lack that, right? We lack that kind of instinctual sexual relationship to things, right? Animals know what they eat. Now, of course, destruction of an environment or whatever, there's evolution and all of that. But for the most part, animals take up an instinctual relationship to their environment once it's it's kind of been put into place for them. And so for us, you find that we don't actually seek the, the satisfaction of our needs. Now, we do have biological requirements and we do get them met to the best of our abilities. But the point is, we don't eat in order to negate our hunger we eat because we like the sensation of eating we eat to eat um and this this type of thing is you know you want to look at beautiful bodies not because it does it doesn't meet a biological requirement but because you enjoy it it gets you excited and so because human beings have a kind of higher cognitive ability we also have this ability to think about what we could have the enjoyment we could have opposed to what we do have and we start comparing and fantasizing about oh there's there's i'm kind of satisfied but if i had it like this i'd i'd really be satisfied right and this whole thing ultimately this derailment really begins with drive and i think uh alenka zupancic does a really great job at um talking about this um, in her book, Why Psychoanalysis. So I just want to read a quote here. <clears throat> she's talking about, to give some context, she's talking about how human sexuality doesn't really have fixed objects or instinctual objects tied to it. Our bodies, the various parts of our bodies, don't have fixed objects. Different objects can get attached to them, and it's more it's not really even about the object so much as just the sensation you get from that part of your body. And this can take us all over the place, right? So the quote is a little bit long, but it really is the best summary of this that I've ever seen. So she starts we, off. We like we like ourselves some long quotes here. Yeah, let's do okay, it. Okay, well, here we go. So Alenka says, Freud starts with the discussion of sexual adorations <laughs> that were identified as such in the existing corpus of medical knowledge, homosexuality, sodomy, pedophilia, fetishism, voyeurism, sadism, masochism, and so on. In discussing these, quote, perversions, <clears throat> the, uh, the mechanisms involved in them, basically the deviations in respect of the sexual object, which is supposed to be an adult person of the opposite sex, and deviations in respect of the sexual aim, supposedly reproduction, Freud's argument simultaneously moves in two directions. On the one hand, he extensively demonstrates how the aberrant mechanism involved in these practices are very much present in what is considered to be normal or natural sexual behavior. Insofar as they are well integrated in what is considered to be normal sexuality, they are not viewed as perversions. 
they are only considered as perverse adumbrations if they become altogether independent of the appropriate sexual object and the supposed sexual aim. If they become autonomous in their fragmented partial aims, that serves no meaningful purpose. Freud would object, however, to the word become, and this constitutes the second crucial line of his argument. Drives are fragmented, partial, aimless, and independent of their object to start with. They do not become such due to ulterior deviation. The deviation of drives is a constitutive deviation. Freud writes, the sexual drive is in the first instance independent of its object, nor is it nor is its origin likely to be due to its object's attractions. This is why, from the point of view of psychoanalysis, the exclusive sexual interest felt by men or women is also a problem that needs elucidating and is not self-evident fact based on attraction that is ultimately a chemical reaction. Now, that's the first paragraph, and I just want to summarize. He's saying that Human sexuality, it, the term is often used as polymorphous perversity. And the point is, we can get sexual enjoyment from all kinds of different things. And there's not this fixed, rigid form for sexuality, right? Um, some people enjoy this, some people enjoy that. And sexu human sexuality is all over the place. And he thinks that's its default setting, its constitutive setting. It's not made that way. That's what it is. And in that sense, we have been derailed from nature because our sexuality is not governed by fixed objects or fixed purposes in the way instinctual sexuality works for animals. So in we're that cut away from nature. In that case, we would not be free, right? Well, and, but here's, if that wait, were the case. Well, yeah, if we were locked into instinct, we wouldn't be free. There's a freedom yeah. that comes with losing instinct and being tossed into drive, even though this <laughs> comes with its own set of problems. Right. Um, nonetheless, this drive, this, this cut away from nature is why we are free beings, right? Is because we're not governed and programmed by instinct in the way animals are. So this is one way of, from a psychoanalytic perspective to talk about human freedom. Okay. So Alenka continues. The discovery of this constitutive and original deviation of drives, which is precisely what distinguishes, distinguishes them from instincts, will gradually lead to one of the major in, inventions of psychoanalysis, the concept of object small a, objet petit a, as it was named by Lacan. To put it simply, objet a will come to name the other, the real object of the drive as independent of its object. So the point is, I know that's tricky, but she's saying yeah. drive gets hooked on an absent object, a missing object, not getting the thing. So our stimulation in our drives is a stimulation from not being totally satisfied. If, you're, if you want stimulation in the drive, you can't be totally satisfied because that means the absence of stimulation. So we get stimulated or excited through not fully getting the thing we want, through missing it or circling, circling it as Lacanians talk about it um and so that means the ultimate object of drive is actually a virtual or negative object which we call objet petit a it's the missing object um now we look for this missing object in concrete particular objects but you never find it there because it is constitutively virtual and uh it's not a concrete object it's a virtual object it's a negative object and 
so that's the idea is that our sexuality is governed around an impossible object we never can get right this is not how it works for animals and this is also on top of drive this is why we have desires we're always seeking a new thing another object because it didn't make good we thought it would be the thing that really satisfies us and ultimately it disappoints us and we're on to the next one right so human desire and drive and they're two different things but both of them are structured around this negative virtual object called objet petita um object the okay. object the object cause of desire and it right. causes your desire because the very, it causes desire because it orients the subject in relationship to an impossible object so like that's what gets you if, if if desire was simply for one specific object well you get the object that's it you wouldn't be a desiring subject you are constituted ontologically as a desiring subject because the thing you're really trying to get is a virtual impossible thing you can't get. So that's right. how you keep on desiring, right? That's what causes you to desire. We say that if the object cause of desire is what structures the very form of our desire, then it's almost like that structure itself is what it's aiming at. That's why it's the object cause of desire. Mm-hmm. Right. There's but, a structural but, lack to it as well. Mm-hmm. Which is which is something that is revolutionary in Lacan and what he was arguing about. I realized in his development of it and the lack of the object or impossibility of it is from like the other schools of psychoanalysis, like object relations. I believe that there is an object and it's based upon instinct and it's the mother's breast or whatever, which is totally exactly the opposite of what Lacan is getting at. Is that you know uh, these objects pretty much and these other schools rely on instinct and Freud. If you read Freud, instinct is not a thing. And Mikey just pointed that out. Uh, one thing I wanted to add, because you talked about uh, the body, the body for Lacan is already a body that's symbolized and misrecognized, right? It's even something that he critiques Merleau-Ponty on. One thing I just kind of want to uh, comment on is like, we could see what, what Merleau-Ponty says. It's like, it's not that I think, but I can, I can do in my spatiality, right? As a, as a totalized gestalt my, of my body. What we can see Lacan say is, I misrecognize, therefore I identify. You're right, yeah. Hmm. Because the idea is that you're an empty, pure, negative subject, right? Which means you lack any positive content of your own. But, I mean, and this is where you get into the, the, the temporal causal paradox, in, in a sense. And I mean, it's retroactivity. Point is, it's in trying to identify with a, a positive object that you are not in misidentifying that the subject emerges. Like you become a, a negative subject because you cannot fully be identical with whatever you're trying to identify with, whether that's you're not in a, a full ontological sense, your image in the mirror, right? That's not you, but it is you in this other sense. And so you're misrecognizing what's going on here. And whether, and, and you can extend this to your social position. Is somebody saying, I am a teacher. Well, yes, you're a teacher and you go to work and you teach students and all that. But there's also this dimension of you that is irreducible to a teacher. You can become another social position and still remain the same subject. And so this is this this whole thing is the effects of language on the body in the, in the simplest terms is that we are beings that have developed enough cognitively that we come into a relationship with our bodies and with language, and this 
causes all kinds of misidentifications and it causes the unconscious to emerge. But yeah, I mean, you're right. And, and so this whole thing, I mean, drive is the way Alenka is talking about this. There's a, there's a lot of different ways we can focus on the subject, but uh, we can focus even on the ego. You can, but you can denaturalize humans end up being denaturalized through this friction between our bodies and language and drive is one of these key ways it happens. And so Alenka goes on. She Can says, Oh, sorry. Good. Okay. Uh, but let us look at the origin of this concept in Freud's observations. One of Freud's main examples is thumb sucking while he analyzes as a manifestation of infantile sexuality, the existence of which for the first time systematically pointed out by Freud and which has met with strong resistance. Okay. In relation to the need for nourishment to which it attaches itself at the outset, the oral drive pursues an object different from food. It pursues and aims at repeating the very sensation of satisfaction produced in the region of the mouth during the act of nutrition. Oral satisfaction, which arose as a byproduct of the satisfying of the need for food, starts to function as an autonomous object of the drive. It moves away from its object and lets itself be led into series of substitute objects. In other words, the concept of the drive and of its object is not simply a concept of the deviation from a natural need, but something that casts a new and surprising light on the nature of human need as such. In human beings, all satisfaction of need allows, in principle, for another satisfaction to occur, which tends to become independent and self-perpetuating in producing and reproducing itself. There is no natural need that would absolutely be pure, i.e. devoid of this surplus element that splits it from within. This split, this in interval or void, this origin or this original non-convergence of two different versions of satisfaction is for Freud the very site of ground of human sexuality. So this is the last part. This is crucial when it comes to understanding another important emphasis of Freud's conceptualization of sexuality. Sexual is not to be confused with genital. The genital sexual organization is far from being primordial or natural. It is a result, a product of several stages of development, heterogeneous, dispersed, um, sorry. Uh, it is a result, a product of several stages of development involving both the physiological maturation of the reproductive organs and the cultural symbolic parameters. It involves a unification of the originally heterogeneous, dispersed, always already compound sexual drive composed of different partial drives, such as looking, touching, licking, and so on. Since the original disposition is necessarily a complex one, the sexual drive itself must be something put together from various factors. The unification bears two major characteristics. Firstly, it is always a somehow forced and artificial unification. It cannot be viewed simply as a natural teleological result of reproductive maturations. And secondly, it is never fully achieved or accomplished, which is to say it never transforms the sexual drive into an organic unity with all its components ultimately serving one and the same purpose. The normal, healthy human sexuality is thus paradoxical, artificial, naturalization of the originally denaturalized drives. 
denaturalized in the sense of their departing from the natural aims of self-preservation and or the logic of a pure need as unaffected by another supplementary satisfaction. One could even say that human sexuality is sexual and not simply reproduction, precisely insofar as the unification at stake, the tying of all the drives to a single purpose never really works, but allow for different partial drives to continue their circular self-perpetuating activity. So that's how Alenka describes it. And as and once you hear it, like you start going, okay, this denaturalization thing kind of makes sense because you find that what make what makes us denaturalized is we seek enjoyment itself in its excess, which is ultimately self-destructive and harmful, uh, which which derails a kind of homeostasis that animals tend to take up in relationship to their environment. And so we are ontologically derailed by this excess we're always pursuing. Mikey. Yes. I'm sorry. Okay. We're at a, I, t- I told Cadell that uh, we'd bring him on at uh, 6.30 your time. And we're just... Okay. It's it's six thirty now. He's in the waiting room, so I was about to bring him in here. Um, but you're not done yet, are you? I, I can I can get done quickly. Okay, here let's I, let's. I, I have a couple more comments and then another quote, and then are we gonna have the, uh, Are we gonna listen to the pot? We'll do that too. too. We'll do that too. Yeah, yeah we're yeah. Do, we'll do that after the. Um, after we bring Cadell on, right? Yeah, my I have a thing I want to say in response to the working class thing related to uh, Daniel Tut's saying. Tut saying, Tut said that Zizek has an antipathy towards the working class. I I will want to say something about that. Andrew will want to say something about that. Everyone will probably have something to to add. Um, and then I will also, but here's one of the things I want to make as a promise to anybody who's coming to this stuff, and it all sounds very alien. Especially if you're listening to these quotes and you're like, oh my God, what? Because I saw some emojis in the chat that looked overwhelmed. And so I'll just say uh, we will talk about how this cashes out for thinking about our personal lives. And because personally, one of the absolute most important things, if, just if I were to step back and say, what's the thing that impacted me the most in the last few years? One of a few things was absolutely jouissance when it finally clicked for me when i finally understood the difference between enjoyment and pleasure in this technical sense and then i started seeing it in my own life that has been freeing it has actually freed me in various ways it is a form of liberation to come into a critical distance on your own habits and things like where you have expectations like, oh, I'm seeking pleasure and I keep giving myself a hard time. And then you realize I'm actually getting jouissance from – I am actually getting jouissance from this, right? Freedom. Freedom comes through that. And so um, – but Mikey, you – we'll, we'll talk more about that though is what I'm saying. And so Mikey, you go ahead and finish up. I'm, we're going to let Cadell here – Cadell in here in a sec. Okay. Okay. Let's do this. Okay. So basically I'm defending the thesis that the left needs to understand libidinal economy – or subjectivity. I just put out a new blog post today um, called Wage Labor and Jouissance, uh, Why the Left Needs Zizek, right? And the point is, it, it's this point, right? That what I just said, and I know the quote is maybe a little 
dense, right? But I'm I'm quoting Alenka on purpose, right? Because first off, Alenka is one of the foremost authorities on this. And I think despite the density of that quote, it's still the best summary, short summary of this Freudian idea of our derailment from nature. It's just a little dense. So, okay. Um, so, yeah. And so part of what I, I, I just, I guess I want to say to, in response to what Doug said and um, his discussion with Ashley, I really like what Ashley had to say about capitalism, by the way. Um, so the point, I guess, is um, Lacanians and Zizekians never claim that human beings never act in their own self, rational self-interest. Of course we do this, right? Um, the problem is it's just not that simple, right? It's not that it's just we're constantly – this is homo economicus that Adam Smith and the classical liberals established this idea like man is – or human is the being that – acts in their rational self-interest and the psychoanalytic rebuttal is yeah but there's this whole other thing called death drive or jouissance and so what it is it's not that we don't act rationally or we can't reason of course we can it's that there's almost another kind of reason operating within us not this wild irrational thing with id or biological impulses but the human unconscious is a highly rational sophisticated mechanism and it has its own logic to it its own reason to it it's just a reason or logic that's incompatible with our basic logic and reason operating at the conscious level and so the the unconscious like I, i've always like to say you might not be an intellectual but your unconscious is the unconscious is highly sophisticated in in its intelligence and how it arranges its its manifestations and slips of the tongue and dreams and etc but okay so uh, what we claim is that human beings are contradictorily split between pleasure, uh, uh, between the pleasure of rational self-interest and the enjoyment or jouissance of irrational self-destruction, even though I think there's a deeper rationality to it. Um, in Seminar 7, Lacan's famous example of somebody following their jouissance regardless of the consequences is Antigone. And... Um, Antigone did not act in her rational self-interest, but rather acted on the basis of her ethical desire or drive. But the point is, you can say, well, okay, and basic position is Antigone's caught in this situation. Her brother has died. Um, King Creon is saying he's not going to recognize her brother and give him a proper burial. And she says, fuck that. Yeah, you are. And so she just will not let up with this demand. And it's getting to the point like she's going to be imprisoned or killed or something. And she doesn't care. She's not going to give ground relative to her desire. She's going to demand this. And so in one say, uh, one sense, you could say, well, she's behaving irrationally. She's putting herself in harm's way. In another sense, you could say, no, at a deeper level, she's acting rationally, but in this rationale of jouissance of enjoyment of not giving ground to, to the basic demand of your libidinal economy. So, this is the split we find ourselves occupying. And so Lacan's concept of death drive really only starts to make sense in light of his distinction between jouissance and pleasure or enjoyment and pleasure. These are technical terms. They don't mean the same thing. Pleasure is the lack of excitation in the body, whereas jouissance or, or enjoyment is excessive excitation. Pleasure operates according to the pleasure principle, which seeks to expel excitement 
tension, stimulation, friction, etc., from the body and restore it to a state of homeostasis, equilibrium, calmness, tensionlessness, in the name of self-interest. Jouissance or enjoyment, on the other hand, is that which is beyond the pleasure principle and operates in accordance with the death drive, the compulsion to repeat. Uh, the motto of the death drive is do it until it hurts. Jouissance is the excess or surplus enjoyment we get from sacrificing our pleasure and undermining our rational self-interest through self-destructive behavior. To enjoy self-destruction is to enjoy various forms of loss or sacrifice. Todd McGowan is great on this. Um, Zizek writes, the ultimate lesson of psychoanalysis is that human life is never just life. Humans are not simply alive. They are possessed by the strange drive to enjoy life in excess, passionately attached to a surplus which sticks out and derails the ordinary run of things. This is from Less Than Nothing, page 499. Oddly enough, death drive is all about a surplus life. If the surplus of life, if the surplus life of jouissance is what makes life worth living for human beings, then we can argue that psychoanalysis is the true study of the life of humankind. The human being is the one organic being that cannot properly be understood through the science of biology. Biology only obfuscates the true surplus life of the human. The human being is forever caught within the friction between the pleasure principle and death drive, between pleasure and jouissance, between bare life and surplus life. Death drive builds up excitation and the pleasure principle releases it, but just so death drive can build it up again. This is the dialectic of pleasure and enjoyment within the drive. And so last thing is uh, McGowan says, and McGowan is the best writer on this that I know of. <clears throat> Todd says, McGowan says, while it may appear as if the distinction between pleasure and enjoyment is a distinction without a difference, just a semantic or a psychoanalytic concern, it actually has clear political consequences. Pleasure occurs within the coordinates of the social field. We can make sense of pleasure, but enjoyment takes place at the point where sense breaks down where the social field becomes contradictory and no longer accounts for what people experience. The contradictory quality of enjoyment makes it painful to endure, and yet its status as excessive relative to the field of meaning allows it to play a determining role in the structuring of our existence. Because enjoyment exceeds the realms of signification, it is meaningless, but this structural position allows it to give a direction to what we do in way of uh, that pleasure cannot. We experience pleasure when we remain within the confines of the social order and acquire an available desired object, whereas enjoyment necessarily occurs at the limit of the structure at the point where we no longer belong to it. The pleasurable object can be a new job, a romantic partner, a bounty of cash, or even a juicy hamburger. No matter the content of what gives me pleasure, in order to remain just pleasurable, it must also remain within the limits of my society uh, that presents to me as possible. All of these objects fit within the possibilities that the social order makes available to me. None straddle its limits. The death drive is a contradictory agency. It erects obstacles in its path and gets off on the obstacles rather than on overcoming them. The death drive, the primacy of the obstacle, causes the distinction between suffering and enjoyment to dissipate. One enjoys what thwarts one's conscious wish, wish what causes one trouble. When pleasure derives from overcoming contradictions, enjoyment occurs within them. That's from McGowan's book, Enjoyment Right and Left. Uh, 
pages 28 through uh, 27 through 8. And so I'll just end by saying um, uh, Ashley quoted Marx uh, saying he defend the idea that humans use reason all the time. Well, Zizek defends reason all the time, too. Um, of course, we can we can act rationally. We, that, that's that's not the question. The point is the Freudian Lacanian unconscious is also highly rational, intelli uh, intellectual and cunning, but it's geared towards enjoyment, whereas our rational self-interest is geared towards Recording pleasure. Recording stopped. Recording in progress. And that was an accident. My bad. Okay. And so, yeah, um, what, what we have at the heart of human libidinal economy is this competing logic uh, between pleasure uh, principle and death drive. And what I'm trying to do in my work um, a lot of the time is try to apply this to real life circumstances, wage labor, consumerism, et cetera. And I know that it sounds abstract, but again, this, you know, I'm, I'm trying to drive home the point that for us Lacanians, um, the whole issue is not that we are irrationally tied to our drives and therefore unfree. My point is that human freedom depends on the drive and that this human unconscious thing that's all about jouissance is highly sophisticated and highly intellectual. That's it. And with that, we're a little bit overdue on time. We were going to bring in Cadell West and Michael from Zizek and so on at 6.30 Eastern or what I guess that would have been Central Standard Time. I can't get my time zone straight. I've been all over the place in the last month. But uh, here they are. Let's bring them in right now. Come on in, guys. Let's see if I can get you in here. It's going to be a party. Hey. Welcome to the Power Hour, guys. What's going on, y'all? Yeah. Welcome. Hello, Cadell. Hey. Hello, Michael. Look, it's All Ryan right. Reynolds. Oh, my God. Hey, everyone. <laughs> for for so all people, cool. this is going to be their first time. Nice to meet you all. First time. Yeah, it's good to meet you. A lot of people, well, this, this will be your. podcasts are not used to seeing this beautiful visage. A lot of people, this is going to be their first time seeing Michael's actual face or. A lot of people on my channel, this is going to be their first time seeing either of these guys. Um, and so let's let's uh, let's take a second here for you both to introduce yourselves. We'll start with Cadell and then go to Michael. All right. Thanks for having me. Um, my name is Cadell Last. Uh, you can find me on, I guess, YouTube's the easiest. Um, a little bit of background on me is that I... Um, I guess I was trained as an evolutionary scientist and throughout my doctorate sort of fell down the Zizekian rabbit hole um, and have been sort of attached uh, as a sort of a, an excessive partial object ever since. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's, uh, it's been a crazy, it's been a crazy ride. Um, but there's something about the whole Slovenian school and the whole Slovenian movement that just, um, once 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 you're into it you 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 can't unhook it's 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 so fascinating um and the way in which they're pushing the limits of contemporary theory um to me opened the door to philosophy in a way that i i had never uh, experienced before so 
excited to be here and uh and and I and love the work you guys are doing. I think the meme game you guys are bringing to the internet is is next level. Um I'm a little jealous of your meme game, but um you know, I think it's good for the culture. So I'll say that. Michael. All right. Hey guys. Thanks for having me on. It's been fun so far. Uh, I'm one of the hosts on the Zizek and So On podcast. We've been doing for quite a while now and just wrapped up a four-month reading group on Zizek's For They Know Not What They Do, which a bunch of you guys have participated in, which was really successful with Matthew Flissfetter. And, uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. I feel like I just went from being a baby to being a littler baby. I might have gotten, you know, like I, I, you're all so far advanced beyond me when it comes to Zizek and his work. And so I'm really excited to learn a little bit from all of you here, um, especially concerning the questions of Slavoj Zizek's relation to the working class. And I know that eventually our conversation about that will be a nice segue back into Michael getting Mikey getting a chance to kind of talk about uh, how this stuff changed his perception and experience uh, and understanding of um, being a warehouse worker. We're working with a bunch of people who they don't go to college, they don't care about theory. How did Slavojic become so important there? That's going to be one of the things that we will get into. And then the the question about ourselves being working class intellectuals or whatever um, is something that we're about to get into here. So I I hope that if I push play on this message that Daniel Tut sent us, that you'll all be able to hear it. But um, if it if it starts playing, just nod your heads. If it doesn't, I'll figure something out. So we're going to listen to what he has to say. Um, in a second here, but does anybody want to give a quick little what? What what did he say on Twitter? Does anybody want to say what they saw being said on Twitter? Anybody have a? We're not going to sit here and pull it all up. And no, I mean, I but... just I think I mean he there was different comments, but I think the one that um, uh, surprised most of us was, and I'm paraphrasing here. I don't want to paraphrase, but it's it's something along the lines of Tut says that he's he's sees a certain antipathy antipathy in Zizek towards working class people, which I mean, if Slavoj doesn't care about working class issues is kind of what I take that to mean. Um, and so that was, that was the one thing that uh, caught my attention, I guess. All right, then let's, and then I reached out, I said, Hey, we're, we'll be talking about all of this stuff. Um, we want to give you an opportunity to elaborate on what you meant. The thing that stuck out to us was the statement about the antipathy to a working class. And so here we go, folks. Hey, what's up, young Zizekians? Uh, it's your buddy, Daniel Tuck here. I hope everybody's doing good. Yeah, so I felt that the Gabriel Rockhill article was actually abysmal. I confess that I had mild sympathies when I first looked at it, in part because, you know, as a student of Zizek, myself, I was just, you know, never really convinced of his turn, turn towards Hegel over Marx. And 
I think I'm much more of a, a political philosopher. And lately, um, but you know, let me just let me just make an interesting remark in what I find interesting about the Rock Hill piece in the saga. So he calls Zizek a radlib homo postmodern philosopher, which is kind of false on both on two on both accounts, right? Um, I mean, if we're really honest, he Zizek fought against post-Marxists like Ernesto Leclerc, who and what did they fight over? In, in many ways, they fought over um, the constitutive basis of class struggle. So, you know, and, and Zizek, and for Leclerc, you know, class was just one other, almost, Leclerc in a sense was kind of an intersectionalist theory of, of class struggle. But neither Zizek nor Leclerc put much of a great onus on a understanding of the proletariat or an understanding of socialist politics that would further a conception of the independent organization of the working class. And that maxim, that principle, which you could call a principle of classical Marxism, is one that I think we must resurrect, but not on the terms of contemporary liberal identity politics, which insists on relativizing class oppression as a kind of one other oppression in a kind of in a kind of discursive battle, right? No, it's a much more real and constitutive basis of capitalist social life, right? One that actually breaks down all of the presuppositions of liberalism, right? Now, of course, I think actually Zizek writes about that. He, he recognizes that. But he does often fall sway, especially in his notion that working class, building working class consciousness is, would result in a essentialism or would result in a fetish of class experience. I mean, yes, it would, if you're allowing to be subsumed by liberal discourses, understanding of class. But if you're not, then I don't think that it would. And I furthermore would say back to you, young Zizekians, why would you call yourselves working class thinkers? I think that that's interesting. I mean, for Zizek, from a place like the former Yugoslavia, which has, you know, decades longer, more recent experience in socialist politics than we do in the United States, even, even a leftist to organize or agitate on the basis of a working class consciousness like we're doing, like you're obviously doing, by calling yourselves working class Zizekians. That's extremely new. I would say it's like six or seven years old that that, that that opening has even been possible, right? So I guess my question is what can we learn from Zizek's philosophy that would allow for furthering of that contradiction? Because working class is not an identity, it's but it has to be constructed in order to facilitate the emancipation of the class system as we know it. But you have to start from that. You can't just uh, not do the necessary work of educating people about working class experience and working class conditions so that some type of organization, some type of unity, some type of transcendence of the liberal 
of a liberal system can take place. This would be my, this would be my hope. And I think that Zizek's philosophy actually offers a lot of insight in that regard. All right. Thank you, Daniel, for sending in your elaboration. Uh, I want to give the floor here first to uh, Andrew. This is the part that I've been waiting on. And, you know, it's not even that you're getting, uh, you know, Andrew or, or Master Signified Bodies. Uh, Nick and I, we always do the fusion dance. So it's uh, free signifiers tomorrow or free, free beer bods tomorrow. <laughs> Um, so there was a lot of points that, uh, Daniel, um, you know, brought up and I want to maintain in dialogue to what he's saying and, uh, pick different, um, you know, ideas that Zizek and maybe various other thinkers without getting too ahead of myself. But I think working backwards, uh, he's, uh, his first thing is why would we call ourselves working class Zizekians, right? Well, you know, we're not proletariats. We're working class, I would say, because none of us have any sort of PMC position or any means of uh, ownership in the means of production. Um, and we don't ho hold any um, university status, right? Um, we sort of, you know, to be, to take a term out of the list, deterritorialize the way education and higher learning could be learned in, you know, the atmosphere of the internet, just like many others are doing. And I think Zizek brings all these thinkers that you're not really going to learn in a higher education center besides maybe Hegel, right? But you're not going to learn Marx. Um, if you learn Lacan, it's going to be in film studies and not in psych uh, psychology, right? And if you do, it's only like one thing and it's very bastardized. It's the mirror stage and overrated in my opinion, it's overrated. But what Zizek does is bring all these thinkers in dialogue and what we said in a lot of these other discussions uh, in this uh, panel so far is that Zizek repeats himself, right? And Zizek has mastered death drive, right? And what death drive also does is it repeats and allows us to learn. It's not just about an excess enjoyment, but it allows us to learn. And as Alenka said in the, uh, the symposium that happened a while back, die and die better, right? And so one thing that if we're talking about the working class, right, and what it means to be a working class intellectual is that, and you could see how maybe post-COVID has uh, kind of, uh, in its contradictions, allowed education and philosophy to center itself onto the internet where people who don't have degrees or access to higher learning that are working class, that are, as Dave likes to say, um, skeptical warehouse workers wearing earbuds uh, can learn from a platform like this, from um, other channels. Uh, we got people like Cadell that are doing this. Uh, we got podcasts like Usually and so on, Machine Unconscious, where people have a way to learn and they gain a curiosity and they're still working class. They're not in any, you know, again, uh, other class dynamic. So I think, and, and he pointed out, that you know working class is not an identity but in a way it is a sort of mediation to be hegelian about it a sort of signifier or language that could situate a subject in today's time to sort of 
work through and understand their position in capitalism, right? And to really evaluate the term working class to take what Nick said about how we should understand strategic is a sort of anamorphic style in which we need to also change our perspective and our notion of working class. Because one thing that Zizek does, and he's correct, Daniel's correct, is that Zizek doesn't fetishize the working class. And he also doesn't fetishize the working class as a sort of proletariat. Because what does Zizek say in the criticism to um, Stalinism and for they know not what they do? We Stalinists, we communists have special stuff in us. That is a fetishism right there. And Zizek wants to point this out and also not fall into the errors of that by going back to this sort of crude MLism. But he doesn't also want to privilege the working class as being victims and honing on this identity politics that liberalism is attaching itself to or identity politics in a sort of liberal form, because I mean, it is that. So Zizek is doing something different and he's realizing that there are these contradictions in the working class. Because if you were to do this or do contrary and, and take on a fetishization, he would be a beautiful soul. And that's something that I think Zizek is, is trying hard not to do is in talking about emancipatory politics on the left is to avoid running into the error of being a beautiful soul, which a lot of people doing. We could see how um, this counterpunch article could be seen as like uh, not only criticizing Zizek, but also making him to be this sort of like vehement devil and that he doesn't understand Marxism and the working class. And me as this beautiful soul writer, I could tell you what, you know, Marxism is and have this master's position. But I think I'm kind of going ahead of myself uh, on that. But pretty much this, this is something that Zizek is doing. And also why I think what maybe Daniels is misunderstanding because he has said that um, he said it in the first um, message, but uh, the only thing I want to evoke from that is in, in Daniel's first message, he says the that message, the message that we're not going to, the message we're not going to yeah. play over the air. It was one of the early right. ones. Yeah. Yeah. But I just want to tie in this part because this is something that was important for sure. He says that uh, Zizek doesn't think of class in general because he comes from the Althusserian school. And that Althusser moved away from understanding class in a sort of sociological aspect or uh, understanding of the relation of power unto itself. And Zizek and Althusser in the structural Marxist aspect uh, sidelined this class dynamic from um, understanding it in the traditional Marxist sense. Maybe somebody like Lukash of this dynamism um, aspect of it and its potentiality for class consciousness. And why is it? Well, if you look at the ideological or the essay on ideology by Althusser, he's talking about class. But what he and, and if you read the entire book, The Reproduction of Capitalism, class is inherent into understanding ideology because both the working class and the ruling class are interpolated into it. It's just that the uh, ruling class have the sort of position in which they could dominate the working class by distributing uh, capitalist re reproduction via ideology with the newspaper, with the churches, with the schools, with these institutions. One thing that Zizek does that I think Althusser doesn't have is the fact that ideology could fail. We're not just interpolated subjects, but that we have a subjectivity that operates when ideology fails. And that is where we get the so-called you know, hysteric, the hysteric mm -hmm. who cannot find enjoyment in the big others 
uh, you know, injunction to enjoy, and they're trying to traverse the fantasy. Uh, Zizek talks about this in Sublime Object when he criticizes Althusser and puts him in line with Kafka, representing the castle as not only being interpolated, but also someone that internalizes it as they hystericize the entire castle and realize that, you know, they were always already in there and they identified, but there's failures into that. Um, I think what I'm trying to get at is the fact that this notion of subjectivity for Zizek um, is one where we operate in failure um, as a sort of hysteric. And another thing that I want to add that Zizek does and why he's so Hegelian versus going back to Marx proper is the fact that Marx's uh, thesis on Feuerbach is, uh, what's the last one? It's uh, philosophers have only hitherto uh, interpreted the world. The point is to change it. Whereas Zizek says, instead of philosophers, they have tried to change the world. The point is to interpret it, to find and question, again, our perspective, but subjective position to then act. Because if we just try to act, we end up creating errors. And I think when Mikey talked about drive, it elaborated everything perfectly. And I want to say that what, if Chris Cretrone says that the left is dead, I think that the left is death drive and they will continue to repeat and learn and question and also change their subjective position over time. If there is anything that could be called class consciousness, a working class or a proletariat in the Marxist sense. And I think that's why uh, Zizek sees Hegel as something because not only do we learn ourselves, uh, or not only do we see everything as substance, which we see as structure in Matthew F uh, Fleecefader's works, but also as subject. I think that's what I want to end it at. It was a lot. Thank you for doing that. And I kind of want to give everybody an opportunity to respond to Daniel's question because he spoke to us in the plural, uh, asking why we identify this way. First, I, I want to be clear with everybody. We don't at least yet have a podcast under the name Young Jijikians. We don't have a about section on a website somewhere. And so it's not like we've come out and collectively all identified this way. So I just wanted to see off of all of you all, um, which of you do identify as working class intellectuals or theorists or what, how do you identify and, and what does it mean to you to say that the class is not an identity and, and how, do, how do you all think about this? You're all too polite, and you're all like sitting there. You're like, <laughs> I mean, I'll just say, I mean, I've never stepped foot in an institution, so I'm a working class intellectual. I learned like on my own. Nick, do you identify as a working class intellectual? I work a full time wage labor job in admin, so yes, I would. Okay, now do you use that identity or do you use that standpoint or experience to say to, – to, to stop people from speaking and then say, as a working class person? <laughs> no, I do not play that card because um, I don't tend to think of myself as that in that I think I was under the sway of a certain fetishized version of what it meant to be working class, which I – picture is like being on an assembly line essentially 
you know, this sort of like Dickensian image of what it means yeah. to be working class. I mean, I, I am maybe more materially comfortable than some other people in this chat right now. I recognize that, but it, it was actually, uh, you know, your elaborations, Dave, on some of the, on, on, on your, you know, idea of what working class is that um, helped me to situate my own understanding of what it means to be working class. Like right now, my official title is management. I'm in a management position, but I recognize that there is this gap between those who are PMC and as you often put it, like not just professional managerial class, but the professional managers of capital and um, everything else, everything beneath that. And there is a, I think, a qualitative difference between mm -hmm. the two. And mm -hmm. when you make that leap from one to the other, your entire, I don't like this expression exactly, but it's appropriate, value system changes and you necessarily have to um, shift your entire worldview in that respect to accommodate a new set of values, which have to do with, as I say, the management of the assets of the people above you, the you know, secretive, elusive cabal of the upper classes. Oh, and then, we're done, um, we're done for, you can't use that word. <laughs> What happens there is, uh, and I, I think a lot of people don't even realize this happens when they move up the ladder, is that you have to make an entire series of accommodations, ideologically speaking, in order to maintain your position as PMC. And it happens in the blink of an eye. People don't even realize that it's occurring. So there is such a thing as upward mobility in that sense. But um, I, I feel like maybe I'm right at that limit where if um, I was called upon a few years hence, like I could make that leap. And then suddenly I definitely would not be able to appear in this conversation right now with y'all. Maybe I'm even running a risk doing it right now. So Fuck that bullshit. No, 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 tank my career and no, bullshit. no, no. No, my hope for all of you is that you get cushy salaried gigs and you don't have to do backbreaking manual labor that makes it so you're unable to do philosophy, that it, you're constantly being stopped from doing philosophy or That's doing theory, point. right? Like the, yeah, absolutely. The, 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 the point is not, I always say this, it's not about whether or not you have some position in capitalism that reproduces that makes you an ideological reproducer of capital or uh controller over labor it's less about the job position that you have and whether that means that you can or cannot participate or can or cannot speak that would be identity politics in the sense that tut's talking about i do believe my point is just like insofar as you're unaware of the fact that your position comes with certain roles and expectations, certain functions in the ideological reproduction of a class society. And the main, the major part of that being the reification of a sense of meritocracy. The left PMC in this country does that by acting like, well, there's essential backbreaking labor 
And then there are thought leader positions. And the thought leader positions are for the deserving, the ones who did really well in school. And, and, and so then the whole question becomes, are you deserving? That's, that's where the whole question becomes, is Slavoj Žižek really responsible with all of this th that's been given to him? Is, does he deserve it? Right? That becomes the question. And on the right, the right PMC, they do this petty bourgeois rhetoric thing. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. That's how you deserve it. But both sides have their own version of meritocracy that they're, they're, they're propping up. right? And the basic thing is, I don't care what you do, good, bad. At the end of the day, you should be able to live a dignified life. right? Mikey, we, we do, though. We do identify as working class intellectuals, but not in this way where it's like, as a working class person, I speak for the whole working class right well, now. I do it because my, my whole adult life has been devoted to philosophy and the life of the mind. Talk about Hannah Arendt. And at this point, every single day, I have to fight capital and wage labor in order to have any shred of the life of the mind. That I have to fight capital and wage labor to think at all. And so the very structure of my life is this battle. I don't want to work. I don't want to be a wage laborer. Fuck that shit. I, I, I don't, you know, and, and yet I have to, right? And so my whole issue is that this, this dilemma that all of us find ourselves in, be a wage laborer or be in poverty, which they're kind of the same now, right? It's less and less of a choice. But uh, do one or the other, um, or fuck you, whatever. There's no no third option, and so this forced choice um, is something that I I have to live every single day of my life uh, in a kind of antagonism towards, in order to be able to write and think and you know, you know the structure of my day. I wake up at five in the morning. I go to the warehouse all day. I get off. I go write and research or whatever for three or four hours at the coffee shop i go to bed i repeat and i want a fuller life I, uh, of of being able to have more time energy as you put it um and i think everybody deserves that that i mean you and i are so big on this thing time energy because for us it's it's a way to connect marxism to existentialism right. and all of that. And that, I mean, you're the one who thought this up, but I mean, I've, I've forever been changed by the concept. And um, that's, that's why I would call myself a working class thinker is for me to be able to think I have to <laughs> deal with the fact that I don't have time energy thanks to capital and wage labor. And so I'm living this contradiction every day and trying to think through it as I suffer from it. And I would, so that, that's why I would call myself that. And I mean, yeah, I mean, not only do you have to fight against capital and the structure of wage labor, you also have to deal with the fact that your, quote, fellow wage laborers don't have your back in any of it. They don't care. And they, they basically do support the system. Um, I know a lot. It's trendy with a lot of intellectuals on the left to really defend this kind of fetishized it's going back to what we were talking about. It's as if like the working class are angels. They can't be deceived. Like Vivek Chibber kind of does this thing. Well, okay. That's great. When you're saying that in academia, I work with these motherfuckers every day. They're deceived. 
Okay, yeah. they, they buy into ideology. They believe that they live in a totally free system. There's nothing exploitative about capitalism at all. I don't have to be here. I can go to another job. You point something out to them like, yeah, but you have to go to another job. And they go, well, that's freedom. I mean, so I'm constantly dealing with the ideological deceptions that working class people are walking around in. And I feel like academics who have maybe comfy positions are scared to say anything negative about the working class. If, if I want to use my working class identity, it's just to say the working class is full of shit. Yeah. And I have to deal with it every day. I live their bullshit every day. And this this romanticizing them as, oh, they're just, there's, it, it, it's so terrible. No, there's self-responsibility in this too. And any chance they get to hear anything that might change their perspectives on capital, they block that shit out. They don't want to hear it. Now, of course, there's always an exception here or there. And I'm always happy to facilitate that and, you know, try to have that conversation but most of them, no, this is the best human society can do is American capitalism. And this is true of people who vote Democrat and people who vote Republican, people who are Christian and non-Christian. When, when, when you start trying to talk about anything emancipatory, you have to avoid these signifiers. You cannot invoke socialism, Marxism. They write it off. I told you today, the reason that I think as a Lacanian signifiers are so important, if you try to go and I mean, it's a, it's just a thought experiment, right? But if for whatever reason you're going, okay, I'm going to go to a, a Christian church and I'm going to try to get all of them to stop being Christians. Okay. It might be possible to get certain people to not be Christians by having conversations and whatever. But if you tell yourself, I'm going to try to get them to not be Christians, but I'm also going to try to get them to identify as Satanist, you're not getting nowhere. You're not getting anywhere with them. And the guys, I, and the men and women I work with, you try to get them to identify as socialists or communist or Marxist in any way, shape, or form. It's like trying to get a Christian to turn to being a Satanist. And so that's my thing. I'm some kind of a leftist, but I'm trying to always live with the fact that none of the workers around me are. And it's real easy for academics to just go, well, just develop class consciousness with them. You try it you, and try to use your signifiers and see where you get. And so if I'm a working class thinker, it's because I'm having to live all of these working class dynamics in a very antagonistic way while trying to think. Okay. I'm done. And I, th I think that there's a lot of people out there we're trying to get into philosophy, trying to get into theory, and potentially more emancipatory political projects. And most of the people who are doing these things and occupying spokesman positions in these fields or areas of interest do not speak the vernacular. And they don't have the visceral experiences. And so, look, it's it would be really annoying um, – I think if if I was all if you were always pulling this as like some kind of a card you play, but the point is not like I, I, there's just a lot of people. They that professors, they're like, well, I'm from the working class. Politicians, well, I'm from the working class. Who gives a fucking shit? You're not anymore. You're not anymore. You're in a different kind of position in society now. So the question is, is how do you advocate for the interests of the workers. 
Okay. Are our days going to get longer or shorter? Are we going to get paid more or less? These are the fundamental questions. And then the bigger questions ought to be, are we able to move to some kind of a society where we actually have time and energy? Bringing it back to the fact that we're not little angels, that the working class is full of the not good ones, right? Because obviously whenever people do the beautiful soul thing, they like to – they're upholding the ones they like, right? And, and then the other side, the anti-populist left will point at people like Trump supporters and go, see, well, that's the working class. Well, fuck. I'm sorry. Without time and energy, structurally stultified, functionally illiterate, what do people have? Poor souls, poverty of the mind, right? No concepts, no way of making sense of themselves in the world. Alcohol and drugs is about it. If it's not that, it's evangelical fundamentalism. It's that and that's all. And so the question yeah. someone in the chat just said, well, Mikey, but you are working class. At least there is one. Okay, yes, there is one if you want to use this as a way of thinking about Things sociologically, sure, but that's just the, the working class in itself. Now, how do you get the working class to become something for itself, right? And so that's where, that's where Daniel Tut's saying that we need to construct a working class. Okay, well, just really quick, when Marx was writing or when the Second International took hold, there were working class associations everywhere. There were working class libraries. There were working class kitchens. There were working class – every kind of institution that society had, there was a working class version of it because working class people had been deprived of rights and so they started their own organizations. Would we say that they were doing identity politics? Okay. Here's my thing. They did not have to construct the working class for itself. It was already for itself. The question was what was its plan? What was its strategy? How did it understand political economy, right? So my, my position is more complicated. Yeah, technically I'm working class in a weird sort of sense. Someone could easily say that I'm sort of lumpen or PMC uh, – uh, uh, what's the word? Advancing? I don't know. Look at me with this thing on. You know, you better believe it. No. I mean I've been living under $10,000 a year for the last five years, right? I've been living inside of a little tiny hole basically like – I've been able to cut out most expenses. That doesn't make me that doesn't give me some kind of like special ability to speak on anything, I don't think. The one thing that I think you're getting at though about class composition and working with being surrounded by other workers every day. You have to think, okay, the things I'm hearing from these people who think that they can make the revolution, can I bring that back to my workplace? If the answer is no, you can't imagine bringing that back to the people you spend all of your time with, then you would say, that, that's not going to work. That whole thing you're talking, it is not going to cut it. That's not identity politics. You're just saying, I can't bring that back to my people. And on the other side, if we're not fighting for a society that's going to free up time and energy for everybody beyond just higher pay and shorter work hours. If we can't talk about that if, – if, if, if that restructuring of society is not plausible, plausible, if, if all you have to offer is you need to sacrifice for generations and generations and do the fight for us and be one of the good workers for us, it's just not – it's not – there's nothing there, right? So 
I, I don't know how much I, – I, there's a lot of communists and socialists in the chat. Not everybody is though. I don't know how I identify. Um, anarchist sex supports said in my chat two days ago, he said that being post-left is just wanting the left to be better. And I was like, well, if that's what that is, then I would definitely identify as that. But the problem is, is all of these identifiers people use mean different, different things to different people. And I don't really have much of a stake in grabbing a hold of some signifier and saying, this is who I am and this is what it means. No, but what I do want though is people who say, hey, we, we're for the working class or we are the working class to think about the contradictions inherent to the working class and to their class standing. Okay. That's, I mean, that's really why we're doing the professional managerial class consciousness course that starts on January 25th. Elton LK of Working Class Intelligentsia podcast. He teaches Gromsky. He's also a DSA organizer. He's also a philosophy club organizer in Boise. I really like Elton. He and I are going to be co-teaching a course that's a sort of introduction to a variety of texts about the professional managerial class. What is it? Uh... There's a lot of people who use it to dismiss other people or they just dismiss the term. They say, oh, it's just a counter-revolutionary term. We're going to think about it critically and, and go with that concept as far as we can in this course. That's the goal of that. Um, for me, there's just a bunch of question marks over all of these things, but we're not the proletariat. None of us are in that Charles Dickens world. None of us are assembly line workers. Um, things got a lot more muddy, especially in the imperial core, right? Yeah. So I think it's also interesting to point out about the fetishization. Like last thing I'll say is that with the fetishization of the working class, it also kind of, um, it conceals the fact that the military is also a conglomeration of class struggle as well. And we get hated on by the left, right? And, you know, being in for seven years, um, the people that are liberal, if they talk about their politics, are going to be from, you know, stereotypically California or like New York. And then everybody else is going to be uh, predominantly from Texas or like Midwest and South. And they are all, you know, pro-Trump, pro-gun. Um, you know, if you even bring up Bernie Sanders, it's like, oh, you know, that's socialism right there. So it's like, how are you going to bring these signifiers into them too? And the left and Marxists, traditional Marxists will call me, you know, like, oh, you're just like, you know, capitalist, you know, armed body of man. But it's like, well, I was talking with Swole about this, you know, shout out to Swole, proletariat, uh, said something about like, um, I guess, I think it's Trotsky that said that the, for the revolution that even the, the, the proletariat, it relies on the military personnel rather than the police. Because the police actually oppress the working class, right, and protect private property. It's not necessarily the case with the military. Of course, there's colonialism and imperialism tied in with the military, right? But I, you know, phenomenologically, personally speaking, I see a lot of people that are resistant toward the military ideology internally. But at the same time, there's also the Zizekian disavow and that comes in with it that also needs to be elaborated. But I think, you know, compared to the police, that there's more hope with the working class in the military. And I would just like to add one thing to bring it back to Zizek, is that one of the main contradictions that I think we're dealing with, and I think Tut is sort of homing in on here with the idea of the working class is that the rise of the working class in the 
traditional Marxist sense, what that would mean if there was a working class revolution, wouldn't it, in a sense, negate the entire concept of the working class because it would redefine what work even is? So this is one of the main contradictions that we're dealing with and why the fetishization of the working class as an identity is so difficult, presents so many challenges because it can, in the dialectics of enjoyment, just regenerate the very structures that we're fighting against. Now I want to hear from Cadell and Michael, but hold on. I just want to read one thing for context, since we're talking about Slavoj. I want to read what I think is one of the better quotes I've found from him on this, and then I want to see what Cadell and Michael have to add. Um, But Slavoj says in um, The Relevance of the Communist Manifesto, he says, the four features of the classic Marxist notion of the working class. One, it constitutes the majority in society. Two, it produces the wealth of society. Three, it consists of the exploited members of society. Four, its members are the needy poor or the, the needy people in society. When these four features are combined, they generate two further features. Five, the working class has nothing to lose from revolu- uh, rev- revolution. Six, the working class can and will engage in a revolutionary transformation of society. None of the first four features applies to today's working class, which is why features four and six cannot be generated. Even if some of the features continue to apply to parts of today's society, they are no longer united in a single agent. The needy people in society are no longer the workers, etc., Correct as it is, this enumeration should be supplemented by a systematic theoretical deduction. For Marx, they will they all follow from the basic position of a worker who has nothing but his labor power to sell. As such, the workers are by definition exploited. With the progressive expansion of capitalism, they constitute the majority, which also produces the wealth and so on. How then are we to find a revolutionary perspective and redefine it in today's conditions? Is the way out of this predicament a combinatorics, weird word, of multiple antagonisms, their potential overlapping? But to use Klaus' term, is it possible to form a chain of equivalences from classic proletarians, precariat, unemployed, refugees, oppressed sexual and ethnic groups, and the like? And so the point he's trying to get at here is classical Marxists vehemently reject this take on the working class, um, you know, because they're they're saying, oh, well, you know, you're blurring the lines or you're making this maybe too complicated. But I find it to convey a certain truth, right? Uh, Namely, that there is no working class in the strict sense Marx understood the term to have. What it means to be an employee nowadays depends on what type of job you have. These differentiations are of fundamental importance due to how they shape a person's sense of identity. In the golden age of class consciousness, workers united around certain particular images of the wage laborer, for example, the steel worker or the coal miner. What we lack is a unifying image of the worker. What particular worker serves as the universal worker? What's worse is that it's becoming more and more difficult to envision such an image taking hold in the collective imaginary. 
what universal image would unite the computer programmer in San Francisco with a barista in Kansas City, with an office assistant in New York, with a truck driver from Nashville, with an adjunct professor in Seattle? Are they all exploited in the same way as the old factory worker was? Do they all get cheated out of their surplus value the way the commodity producer did? Is their industrial capital, uh, labor power, truly the main source of today's wealth? Or has financial capital, virtual transactions, speculations on speculations, algorithmic fuckery, et cetera, taken over that position? Another uh, problem lies in the fact that the vast majority of people do not base their identities on their class positions. Personal identity is far more rooted in one's religion, culture, gender, sexuality, and interests. Hell, people are much quicker to identify with a sports team than they are to identify with a class. Marxists can say that this is no coincidence. Instead, this is the work of capitalist ideology. Fair enough. However, even if you were to get people to agree with this, what image of the worker would you be able to elevate to the universal in their hearts and minds? What, the industrial commodity producer? Ha. Nobody relates to that at all nowadays. There has to be a new concrete embodiment of the universal for identification to occur, and not just the vague notion of this indeterminate thing called capital fucking us all over in some mysterious way. I certainly would love for some sort of class consciousness to emerge and take hold in society. I'm sure Zizek would too, but we have to be realistic about what we're facing. Okay, that's it. We have a half hour left, folks. Cadell? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in. I mean, I definitely came from a working class background and I still feel like um, you could say I have, I always feel like I have traumas from that background that like prevent me from, from moving forward in the way that I would like to or the way that I, I see certain people who don't have that same background moving forward because there's just so much emotional anxiety and sensitivity around the topic of money that it makes it difficult to move in, in ways that I see people who don't have that background moving, you know, and, and that brings in the dimension where you have to combine, I think, psychoanalysis and, 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 and bring that in there too, um, because of the effective dimension of, of, of what that does to, to the mind and the body. Um, I wanted to make, I wanted to make a joke that, you know, we could get, uh, shorter working hours and more pay or we could just have mindfulness break rooms and yoga sessions in the morning you know like i've actually seen that in in like some some companies like they they, they say yeah like we're we're fixing the problem for the workers by getting in a mindfulness room and we get a we, get, we have a yoga instructor come in on a, on friday mornings and a, you know the, the, this is helping the <laughs> this is helping the work the work amazon amazon has that uh, they have the zen yeah booth. yeah yeah right 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 yeah so you know and then in regards to the working class as an identity politics, I always thought Zizek's position, and I always appreciated this about Zizek's position, was that identity politics is actually obfuscating the antagonism of both class difference and sexual difference. That when you have everyone sort of focused on their sort of racial or gender identity and, 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 and making that the primary issue, it sort of erases the possibility for thinking about um, both class and, and, and sexual difference, again, to bring in sort of the psychoanalysis and the, and the Marxism and the connection between that. And I think the reason why is because as painful as some of the identity politics issues can be, I think the class difference and the sexual difference are the most painful. 
And so thinking that is, is painful. <laughs> and, and, and the people who have that experience are the ones, well, you know, like Mikey's bringing up, not everyone who has that experience is willing to think it, but there are people who are willing to think it. And, 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 you know, at least in my experience in university, the place for thinking that did not exist. And, and another attraction yeah. I had to Zizek was that outside of most intellectuals that I was exposed to, um, you know, as intelligent as, as any of them may be, they all kind of operate with a liberal democratic ideology, you know, irrespective of the intellectual discipline that they work with. So I think, you know, in terms of Zizek's work, you know, whatever you can criticize him about, he definitely breaks that horizon and thinks outside of that horizon. And I think that's so important that an intellectual of that standard thinks out of that horizon and not just an intellectual of that standard, but a, a pop culture figure of that standard is, you know, like he, he gives like a, a presentation at like a huge uh, arena uh, about the idea of communism and like it's allowed to happen. You know, I think that's so important. Like you don't see that very often, like, and, and, and the way he approaches it, I think is quite um, important and, and interesting. I wanted to make a, a few points. Let me see if I can make them very quick. Cause then I want to, I want to hand it over to Michael, but I, I want to say that I really do support the move that, that, cause I went through like a, you could say a beautiful soul stage of, um, being very like I remember giving a, a presentation that I'm actually retroactively embarrassed about where, where I was like going full Marxist you know and I'm actually I'm glad that there's no video footage of that it's like okay I was I was young but I, I appreciate Zizek's move from Hegel to Marx uh, sorry from Marx to back to back to Hegel for a few important reasons I think the concept of the rabble over the proletariat I think that points to some of the things that 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 Mikey was getting at. I think the, the rabble and and is is a it doesn't it doesn't give you this. We don't we shouldn't search. I don't think for like a, an idealistic image of the working class. And I think the rabble is a good concept that 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 prevents that that from happening. The idea that that we are uh, you know at, you know I think and to connect it to one of Andrew's points, which I thought was was really good um, about um, basically. Uh, interpretation over action being that we like I'm not saying we shouldn't act but this idea that we are active subjects that know we are going to actualize the end of history in a world communist revolution or something like that that's a that's that's kind of a silly notion like and Zizek always brings up that idea that idea that uh, I would pay uh, I would sell my mother into slavery to see V for Vendetta 2 you know, like when the day after the, uh, the, 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 the workers' revolution, like, so this idea that we all have a workers' revolution, we should just get rid of this notion, I think. I don't think that's a very helpful notion. I think that's just a, a, a perhaps a screen image in, in the Freudian sense of screen image, maybe. Um, let's see, what maybe one, one more point. See, right there, oh, right, right, right there, though, if you can say that that's what Zizek thinks, I think that the, the position. Um, of of these critics that we've been responding to for the most part, they'd say exactly, that's the point. That's an antipathy to the working class. You're saying that the working class can't go from being in itself to for itself. You're saying the revolution's not possible. Communism's not possible. Right. So in a certain sense, maybe, yeah, go for it. Because I, I, I wanted to make one last point. I think it's connected because we always have this idea that the, the, the working class is going to 
overthrow, become for itself, abolish the, 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 the capitalist class. But what if we're not, the, 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 that image is put in place because we cannot think a deeper negativity. And I think this is, so here's, here's, here's my, and this, I'm not, this is, well, partially my idea, but it's, I think it's consistent with how Zizek's developing his political ideas in his latest books, like in Surplus Enjoyment, I think it's, it features pretty, pretty strong, which is the idea of disaster communism. So if we have the idea of disaster communism, that means it's not that the working class is going to overthrow the capitalist class. It's that the capitalist class is going to experience a negativity that puts them on everyone's level, that everyone experiences a global negativity. It doesn't matter if you have a billion dollars. They have these fantasies of going to Mars or going into underground bunkers or whatever. But what if there's a negativity that is going to be like, there's going to be a, I think that's, to me, that is the only solution is that there would have to be a negativity that's so great that it actually unifies the human species. And I think the coronavirus is an example of something that before the coronavirus happened, it was hard to imagine something like that happening. I remember the first few days when, when like we're on a global shutdown and I was like, this is, I can't believe this is happening. This is an example of like when the impossible becomes possible, <laughs> you know, like, and it's, but in this sense, and just my final, my final point, um, something like coronavirus is probably a symptom of something much larger global negativity that could happen in the 21st century that might happen in our lifetimes. And that's, I think, the only, that, that's the only way you're going to get big nation states to unify. Like Kant was silly in the idea of thinking that nation states would unify into some global entity. I think it has to be, in a Hegelian way, a type of global negativity. And I think that is the link where in terms of global politics, we have to think Hegel instead of both Kant and Marx, because they both had too much a positive idea. And I'll just leave it to leave it to Michael there. Yeah, cool. That was great, Cadell. Awesome. Uh, I've got some more general remarks, recapitulating some of the stuff that you guys were talking about earlier. So Rock Hill's kind of black book of Zizekianism I've been asking myself, like, what is he aiming at exactly in cataloging Zizek's supposed sins? So Zizek is being set up here as the, the subject supposed to be not radical enough. So Zizek isn't a threat. He fits smoothly into the capitalist edifice, et cetera, et cetera. But ironically, Zizek here isn't violent enough for Rock Hill, despite his uh, reference to Gandhi and Hitler. And we're all familiar with the kinds of charges people have against uh, the humanities or philosophers in general, the kind of nasal navel gazing, the pie in the sky, head up your ass or head in the sand type of thinkers. But Zizek has managed to think through the historical moment, providing an imminent critique and tests his theoretical matrix in real time. And this means actually taking concrete political positions. And he gets accused of offering no response to capitalism, no alternative, and at the same time criticised for his various political positions, like actual interventions, claims and stakes. And for the most part, these accusations come from what Hegel calls beautiful souls. So as Zizek defines it, herein lies the lesson of the dialectics of the beautiful soul from Hegel's phenomenology of the spirit. 
the beautiful soul incessantly laments the cruel conditions of the world, which prevent the realization of its good intentions. What it overlooks is the way its own complaints contribute to the preservation of these unfortunate conditions. That is the way the beautiful soul is itself an accomplice in the disorder of the world it bemoans. Now, with Rock Hill, if Zizek is the court jester, then what of the jester's privilege, right? So these kinds of takedowns are a way of avoiding an encounter with Zizek's work. And whether apocryphal or uh, like historically inaccurate, jesters give bad news to the king that no one else would dare deliver. Uh, The jester's privilege is the ability and right of a jester to talk and mock freely without being punished irony here so i'm glad you guys have put it on that it's happening because we now have rock hill and zizek in the same room so i recently came across this uh, sexual practice called soaking also known as marinating or floating it's a sexual practice of inserting the penis into the vagina but not subsequently thrusting reportedly used by the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints Jump humping, as it's known, involves the help of a third person to bounce on the bed on which a couple is lying while they are engaged in soaking, providing the missing (laughs) element of motion without making the couple responsible for the motion itself, the act. So this behaviour, as a response to the religious (laughs) prohibition of enjoyment, makes explicit this essential third virtual point from which our desire is articulated, the uh, epa si muave of sexual desire. So we've managed to stage this uh, interpassive union between Rock Hill and Zizek and us, the jump humpers. Um, and that, yeah, that, that's it for me. I mean, I if there not... was ever a quilting point, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I did not know about this, the, the jumper. I knew about the, the insertion and then nothing, but I didn't know about the, the person who jumps. And and in the chat said this is apparently a big thing at BYU. All right, folks. Uh, I want to give. Do you, do you, you, Mikey? You say that that's a good quilting point. You want to? You think this is the, the, the This is it then? Well, can I? Oh, or can we do? Okay, that that ended it. But can we go on a little bit more? Like this is a <laughs> post Can we like, do some that, pillow? That has to be the can we? Point. Can we do some pillow talk? <laughs> <laughs> Here's the thing. I really want to finish some of the points I had about the current affairs art article. Um, so let me, I'm, a, I'm there, there's like three more main criticisms of Slavoj and let me, we'll, I'll, I'll talk about each one and then you guys say something and then we'll wrap it up after this. But Love I it. gathered some quotes together and I really uh, want to read them. So you'll see why in a second. Um, okay. So, Here's the thing. So besides the racism thing that we've talked about, um, the other big uh, slam against Slavoj is his uh, reactionaryism. So it goes like this. um, Something like Slavoj is reactionary because of what I'll call his accelerationist tendency concerning Trump and Le Pen. I myself have been skeptical about this strategy, but I see his point. I neither want to vote for centrist liberals nor for far-right conservatives. Slavoj's basic idea, though, 
is the longer we kick the liberal centrist can down the road, the stronger the fascist energies will grow and grow and grow. The accelerationist desire is to force something to happen now instead of later. I've seen Slavo express a certain dislike for accelerationism in YouTube video, but I still think that type of logic is operative in his position on Trump. So, I, I mean, look, I, I don't know how you guys feel about it, but I mean, I, I, I have friends who are accelerationists and they, this idea that you need to make things worse right now in order to open up some sort of possibility. I see the, the logic there. I don't want to buy into the logic, but I also don't want to let the centrist think. So it's like just being caught in a deadlock. And so I think Slavoj was thinking about this idea of, yeah, if you, if, if Trump gets in, it'll force the left to recalibrate or reorganize Sanders style or something like that. And yeah, so I want to know what you guys think on that charge. It wasn't his point that he thought Democrats were kind of sleeping at the wheel and he was hoping that they would wake up. Right. That's, and I, and I think he walked it back later because he got a lot of flag. I don't know if he walked it back or not. I was, I'm somehow under that impression. I don't know if I saw that or not, but um, I think he added some, I think he elaborated on his point at least. Um, it's just, this is a per, to me this is a good example of i don't see how this really has to do with his philosophy or his theory right but as a you're saying you know we've got friends who are actual accelerationists what about them my my thing to actual accelerationists is i don't really think our political opinions make that much of a difference in fact i think that we should loudly proclaim that they don't and that we are not represented and as soon as a person starts being like, but I'm an accelerationist, I think, oh, that just sounds like some copology, right? You're, you're trying to cope with the fact that things are getting worse by telling yourself, it's good actually because now we can just get over you know, to the better thing later. That's all I hear. When are we talking? Are we talking about the, the the move he made by saying we should that like it would be good if Trump got elected so that it would accelerate the possibilities of a sort of a deeper leftist transformation of politics? Yep. That that that, that I know that that became con controversial. I mean, I think again, like the logic in his head there is kind of a, a, a play of dialectical negativity because the idea would be if we got like a Hillary Clinton or. Or or Joe Biden, it's just gonna, it's kind of, it's kind, it's just gonna be kind of be like a, it's gonna be a prolongation or continuation of the status quo, and there's not gonna be enough negativity to necessitate a deep leftist change in America. And then I've heard other people say that, you know, to apply this leftist ideology into America is the wrong way to go because. America is never going to be pushed that far in that direction. America is never going to be pushed that far left as a mass movement, but maybe it would take, you know, something like, you know, so, some, something like a, a Trump administration of two terms, pushing it over the edge or something like that. I'm not sure. I'd like to just add to that, that I think um, you could confuse Slavoj's statements about Trump and 
the impact that that has in terms of like clearing the field with a kind of accelerationism. But if you take into account his theories of retroactivity, then no act or event can ever be qualified as such until after it's happened. And that's the kind of sacrifice that we would have to make if we we're going to think in revolutionary terms is that the actual inscription of the meaning of what happens can only be ultimately judged, you know, from the, the, the view from the apocalypse, so to speak, after the fact. And that's the thing. That's what we don't want to happen. That's what the accelerationists don't want to sacrifice is the idea that what I'm doing right now is revolutionary, but also I get to judge it as such right now in the moment. And that's a metalinguistic stance. It does seem like that. And, and even, you know, now like, you know, we got Biden, it's like the, the radical, I guess it's not even radical, but the fact it's like people were so like, amped up about like Bernie and you got the Bernie bros and the AOC simps and all that. But now that Biden's in office, it's like, you know, where are they at? And the fact it's like, it seems like there's this sort of moderate, even like <clears throat> liberal stance between Bernie and, and even uh, AOC now that they sort of didn't have when Trump was in office and they kind of represented this sort of like uh, socialist potentiality in America during Trump's time. And that's gone. I don't, know. I don't know what you think about that. Want to deal with this one, Michael, or you want me to move on? Okay. So then the other charge, which is the worst one, I think, in the, I mean, I mean, the racism one's the worst one, but this is the most laughable. Uh, repetition and academic malpractice. So the charge is uh, Slavoj really sucks because he basically keeps writing the same book over and over again. Uh, he admits this himself. Um, this is, I think, the counterpunch argument also does the same thing here. A bit, yeah. Um, attack, attacks him for this. Um, Slavoj keeps returning to the same topics and the same core group of thinkers. Uh, he self-plagiarizes and he recycles his material a lot. I mean, a lot. Uh, what distinguishes him is the fact that he is the only prominent academic I am aware of who engages in intratextual self-plagiarism, who, in other words, recycles passages in one and the same book. Um, to all of this, I say, and like, okay, maybe this is me as a, a working class peasant, but I don't give a shit if somebody repeats themselves or it, like if somebody wants to write like a quick analysis of death drive in one book and they want to use that same logic and they just copy paste, I don't care at all. I don't know how that is some horrible charge um i don't care if he repeats himself or, or or quotes his own shit or just recycles it if he's using it to make another point in another context i don't think it's a big deal at all um and this idea that that's all he does i just want to say that um he does repeat himself a lot there's no all of us will agree to that however the key is to see how he doesn't simply repeat himself for example Chapter three of Sublime Object of Ideology contains his application of Lacan's graph of desire to the process of ideological interpolation, which he never repeats anywhere else. The chapter on superego in the Metastases of Enjoyment is very singular and special. Yes, he'll discuss superego in virtu virtually all of his books and even reconceptualize it, for example, at the beginning of chapter six of The Tickler Subject. 
but his treatment of it in metastasis still stands out <clears throat> on its own. His analyses and usages of Lacan's four discourses in I Rock the Broken Kettle is unlike any of his discussions of the four discourses anywhere else. He has a wonderful engagement with Levinas in Did Somebody Say Totalitarianism, which never gets repeated anywhere else. He really, uh, we really only get a robust description of Slavoj's Bartleby politics in the last chapter of the Parallax View and so on and so on. There are these very special spots in his work that he works something out and he doesn't simply repeat it, copy and paste it. Um, and this critic leaves that out so um and then okay he's okay so if anybody wants to address that and then i'll move to the last point the people who hate this just don't read or write a lot i think i don't know that's what it seems like to me yeah yeah i agree with i think i think i think zizek has had a, a a meta um a meta theoretical aim that constitutes his entire career, which is this relationship between Hegel and Lacan. And he sort of repeats this because he stumbled upon some unique theoretical formulation, which he, I think he thinks represents a new philosophical paradigm. And yeah. I think he wants to leave this behind like for like, like I think when the Zizekian moment is over, I think that, he wants to leave this core body of work behind for hysterics like us to, to to precisely work at this repetition and try to understand it because this relationship specifically between German idealism and psychoanalysis has never been sort of explored or exposed in the way that Zizek has done it. And so I don't see the problem. It's it's like saying it would be it would be like me saying, for example, all Richard Dawkins ever does is write the same book about evolutionary biology again and again and again. It's mm -hmm. like, yeah, or all, all, all Heidegger does is write about being over and over and over again. That's all right. Heidegger like, does. And I think it has to do with the logic of the example. Uh, Zizek is the philosopher of the example and exemplification, and the example always brings with it a certain excess. And this revisiting of examples again and again, well, one, it could be the logic of the death drive itself, but two, it's the idea that we have to revisit examples so as to not get caught up in the illusion of, well, one, on the one hand, like a kind of, you could have like a sort of Anglo-Saxon nominalism, which only focuses on particulars. And then on the other hand, a idealism which centers itself around universals. But the reason Zizek uses his examples is not just to, uh, you, you know, perform this like fireworks display to get people's attention, but to show how examples not only condense universals but problematize universals in a way that keeps us on our feet that doesn't allow ourselves to that doesn't allow us to become too complacent when it comes to this idea of what and this is one of the charges against philosophy in general is that it's too abstract right it zooms out too quickly and i think that what 
Zizek's project is oriented towards is trying to counter that by finding examples from domains of life which would be considered traditionally beneath the purview of philosophy. The example always problematizes, and that and for that reason, we should adhere to the example rather than the beauty of the platonic universal, which is apart from things resplendent and self-satisfied. Right. And that's what Hegel was trying to do originally in the phenomenology of like, how could philosophy be a science, right? Because he noticed something unique with science in that, but there's still the contradiction between the uh, universal and the particular. And Zizek is adhering to the Hegelian dialectic and doing so with this notion of the example, problematizing the universal in the particular. All right, everybody. It's been really good having you all on. I want everyone to have this opportunity to say their final piece, and then we're going to close it out. Cadell, seriously, thank you for joining us at three in the morning yeah. from France. Thank you. Yeah, it's 3 a.m. in the morning. Got a little, I'll play some Eminem after this. No, it's a pleasure. I had some coffee. I'm, I'm, I'm doing all right and I'll, I'll, I'll sleep in tomorrow morning. So no, it's, it's been a, been a pleasure to be here. Yeah, this uh, is, this is, like this is a, this is Sorry, mate. Um, yeah, I'd just like to say anybody that's interested in Zizek's use of examples can refer to Robert Fowler's essay that he wrote on Zizek's, I think it was toolbox or toolkit. And Dave can put that in the video note. Just send me the link. I'll put it there. Yep. I also, I want to say I, I, I did a, I did a, a video on the, the current affairs article when it first came out. Is that the current affairs article we were referring to? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, if you can, if you can link that, I think that, that, that I did, I, I went, I, as soon as that came out, I was like, oh no, I'm going to do a video about this. It was so bad. It was it's so terrible. Hilarious. <laughs> when I, I think, was that Noam, Ch I heard that Noam Chomsky was responsible for hiring that guy or for, for putting a hit out on him. Oh, really? I, I didn't hear that. Okay. No, I mean, I'll just say the, uh, yeah, as far as that article goes, the last criticism is uh, charlatanism. And uh, the, the, the author claims like, oh, well, um, he's a charlatan because uh, in books like uh, Absolute Recoil, he says stuff like dialectical materialism transposes back into nature, not subjectivity as such, but the very gap that separates subjectivity from objective reality. For dialectical materialism, the subject is prior to the process of subjectivization. This process fills in the void, the empty form, that is the pure subject. Dialectical materialism considers historical materialism as a specific ontology, a kind of, the point is he's going, Oh, see, it's just a blah, 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 blah. And I want to go, well, bud, uh, newsflash. If you think like, here's Kierkegaard, a human being is spirit. Well, what is spirit? Spirit is the self. What is the self? The self is a relation that relates itself to itself or is the relations relating itself to itself and the relation. Uh, Sartre says, you know, um, uh, consciousness is, uh, where does he say? Particular. Uh, um, we shall see that uh, being for itself is uh, being what it is not, 
and not what it is, right? And Heidegger will say stuff like nothingness itself, however, is being. Uh, this goes back to the pre-Socratics. And if you think that philosophers making paradoxical statements is only something, only Slavoj does that. No, you haven't read Derrida, Deleuze. I mean, welcome to the party, pal. Like that's, <laughs> that's, that's I, what this is. And so I just want to, okay. I'm oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I'm done. I'm done. I just want to say quickly, last thing I want to say is that I think a lot of this, you know, problem is that philosophers are operating on a different plane of discourse than, you know, a current affairs article or even like, you know, the university discourse of like, um, you know, the production of of the peer review process and stuff like the uh, papers like this. And I think in that way, it's like, the criticism just won't have any real material effect in the big scheme of the historical narrative or the philosophical narrative as such. I mean, Zizek is a part of the philosophical narrative as such. He's going to be there a hundred years from now. It doesn't matter if current affairs or whoever comes out with an article against him. Zizek is in the philosophical main narrative. He'll be there with Derrida and Heidegger and Foucault and stuff. It's already, it's, it's so it's just another level of discourse. It's like, Hey, you mentioned Eminem. My spot is forever reserved. If I ever leave her, that would be the death of me first, right? Well, stop to say that. <laughs> so, look, I, what I want to say is just Slavoj's work has changed my life. I think he's one of the greatest philosophers that ever lived. Um, I think he's, he like Cadell saying, his legacy is going to endure. Um, his theory of ideology is going to stick around. And I think his most lasting contribution is going to be his reading of Hegel and of dialectical like Lacanian Hegelian ontology. And I think he's planted the seeds and laid the foundation for this type of ontology to emerge. I think other people are going to come along and develop it further in more concrete detail or whatever. He, he's seeing the big picture. And I think this ontology of contradiction is here to stay. Um, and I, I think there's a, a very strong case to be made that Hegel or uh, Zizek is the first person who ever remotely read Hegel correctly. And that's going to be another thing that endures. And on a, on a personal note, it's like his work. I've just always connected to it. His work has gotten me through some of my hardest times being able to read his books. Um, when I was a bouncer, I could sit there and read the books on my phone. I talk about it in the article I posted today. Um, I'm sharing it in the so, chat. And I got to meet Slavoj, as did you. Many of us have. Um, he's the night, one of the nicest guys I've ever met. And I, I know how he is to his friends and how much they love him and how great he's been to them. And so I just, I, I don't like these cheap opportunistic takedowns. I think they're bullshit. And I think most people can see through them and see them for what they are. And, uh, Long live Slavoj. All right, everybody. Thank you. Well, the real Zizekians, please stand up. I want to pose, a, I want to pose a question before we leave, uh, apropos of um, jump, jump pumping. The third party in the experience, in the dynamic, is that a, a vanishing mediator? Mm. Something to contemplate. All right, That's we'll going to be our it. next Here's the vanishing mediator. Bye, Felicia.
All right, and I'm still here. Let's see if I can turn on my camera here. All right, what's up, everybody? Right before I let you all go, and I'm sure some of you have already gone, I want to take a quick moment to make a plug for our sponsors. That's right, everybody. It's a time. It's the time for a commercial. A commercial? Who are the sponsors of this production? Well, the sponsors is me, Theory Underground. I put forward my own wage labor money to build this website, and so I want to talk about it really quick. Looks kind of like Facebook, doesn't it? Well, that's because you can have your own personal profile on this website. That's right. <laughs> that's right. If you go, let's, let's, I'm going to give you all a quick tour of the website. This is the homepage. It's a work in progress. Give me a break. I made a little trailer for my European tour that we did. I'm going to be rolling out videos all year long about various philosophers whose graves we visited. The general areas or sort of research threads are political and social theory, the good life, heretics and hysterics, and special cultural topics. And uh, you can see here that I have a calendar with all the upcoming events. And then I have a list here of some of the essential texts that we aim to read and reread and reread. So uh, that's the that's a homepage. But the main thing I want you to think about is going to the course tab of theory-underground.com forward slash courses. There are currently three courses available. One starts next Saturday. That's the, Carl Jasper's The Idea of the University. We're going to read that book in its entirety. It's a short book. It's a, it's a relatively easy work, but it's an important work of philosophy that thinks about what is the idea, role, function, and responsibilities of a university as opposed to the other institutions that exist today, political and business, and how do the interests and of the the political and business interests contradict the idea of the university and co-opt it. So it's a sort of positive critique by an underrated philosopher, one of the fathers of existentialism. So that's the idea of the university. It starts on Saturday. Then we have the professional managerial class consciousness course. By the way, both of these courses, I would say, are beginner level. Professional managerial class consciousness, we will be talking about primarily Barbara Ehrenreich's work, but also we will be talking about some liberal, conservative, etc. perspectives on class today. And then lastly, and that, that's on uh, January 25th when it begins. These are $50 a piece. Oh my gosh, do not call me right now. This is a terrible time to call me. Okay, I... Stop it. Hold on. Hold on, folks. Guys, guys, do not call me right now. I'm, I'm, I'm still streaming. Bye-bye. <laughs> Jeez. All right. Sorry, everybody. And then lastly, Mikey will be teaching Slavoj Zizek's For They Know Not What They Do. But for anybody who's been a fan of the stuff that I've done with Mikey, it's going to be the same deal. We're, it's kind of a co-teaching thing where he gives the lecture and I'm the interviewer. I'm the hysteric. I try to listen thinking, OK.